The world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions. Gamers dominate the tabletop and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies and fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hello, operatives, and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, with my co-host, Don Chisholm. The situation at this moment is brutal and inhospitable to art, and the act of simply saying those words fills me with terrible sadness. Oh, that's a great start for the episode, Don. <laughs> All right. Um, so, thank you, Dr. Wortham. All right, then. So, or is it Professor Wortham? Ah, it doesn't matter. Same, same. All right. Here's the doctor. So, um, tonight we're going to be talking about the psychology of comic books. And more specifically, what the audience gets when they read a comic book. Like, what, are we, what, do, they, what do they get from it? And actually, let's start with who are the audience. Don, who are the audience for comic book readers? Nerds. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> Yeah, it's the obvious joke. It is the um, obvious joke because it's mostly true, sadly. Or at least in North America, it's traditionally mostly been true. I think around the world, it varies greatly. And it also depends on the type of comic we're talking about, right? Yeah, I, I, I think, and right off the bat, I think you're hitting on one of the biggest problems in a discussion like this. Mm -hmm. And it, it ties into the, the quote that I gave is actually from uh, Martin Scorsese talking about superhero movies. Oh, okay. Sorry, I thought that was from Wortham's this, uh, Seduction of the Innocent. It sounded oh, like it, that. Oh, it might as well have been because it's it's that same attitude that the uh, superheroes, uh, comic book material, the nerdly arts in general, is somehow inferior to, say, a straight-up drama and is therefore the realm of the juvenile and the mentally stunted. Like, that's... that's and as you said historically that was kind of how it was viewed well obviously whoever said that has been to a comic book shop <laughs> thank you thank you well, i'll be here all night folks try to liver anyway yeah, a, co a, co a comic shop circa 1983 well that's true the comic shops you and i went to or worked at yeah. in the case maybe yeah and, and and again it's it's why uh the discussion like this i think it'll be difficult but pertinent because like we've said before on the show, nobody who talks about entertainment or media ever looks at the audience as part of the process. They're, mm -hmm. they're the end. They're, they're the, they consume and that's all they do. And it's not quite like that. There's a reciprocal relationship. Mm -hmm. And you can, you can kind of see that who the audience for different things is changes over time. Uh, if you want to talk, say comic books in North mm -hmm. America, when you go back to the, 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 the thirties, the forties, the earliest days of comics, it was everybody. Right. Yeah. When you get to, uh, as you said, with uh, Dr. Wortham, when he did seduction of the innocent after the Senate subcommittee uh, hearing, mm -hmm. there was this attitude that the audience for comic books was children 
Right. Even though just like a year before, it was everybody. And the thing that kind of sticks in my craw, that the perception of the general public was that comic books were inferior material for kids, but newspaper strips were proper Americana and good entertainment for all audiences. So as soon as you add color and make them longer, they become kids' crap? You'd, you'd think, except when you go back to the earlier days of the comic strip, they were in color, and, and like, when Windsor McKay did his stuff, it would be a full, like, a full proper page, like you would That's see true. in a comic book. So it's it's that idea that when you talk about any kind of entertainment, and I think we're going to mm-hmm. bump back and forth talking specifically comics, there's always kind of a preconception of who's consuming what you're doing, and what kind of things you can actually do. Okay. And it's not always true because that's the idea when you talk comic books up until here in North America, up until I would say the late seventies, early eighties, mm-hmm. that idea of comic books are strictly kid stuff was the general view, even though you had people bucking that trend all through that era. Like, you get to the 60s, even pre, uh, pre-undergrounds, pre mm-hmm. you had people who were doing, like, say, adventure comics and such that were being written for a more, if not adult, a more articulate audience. Definitely, yes. And you also had the Tijuana Bibles that were basically just comic porn. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. There's those two, and they were often crudely drawn and um, very simple. But you know, their audience just wanted whacking material, so that's all they had to be. <laughs> yeah, and 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 the thing was, nobody thought of these things, these outliers, as comics because it was strictly that idea that they were strictly for kids. Right. Well, not the Tijuana Bibles. Well, no, and, and obviously not, but they weren't considered, they were considered something separate, even though they were comics, mm-hmm. because of that. It's it's the same thing uh, to uh, anybody listening today, if, if you're old enough to remember when South Park first came out, mm-hmm. definitely not for kids, but it was a cartoon, and people didn't know how to react to that. Yeah, that's true. I mean, they'd had The Simpsons already, which had kind of pushed the boundaries, but South Park went so far over the boundaries that they couldn't see the line anymore. And people had no idea what to do with it at first. I do remember that, yeah. Yeah. Um, And although you will see, um, South Park is one of those things that does not, unlike The Simpsons, get aired in afternoon afternoon family hour (laughs) or strips. No, and because, again, it was that idea that the Simpsons still kind of adhered to the idea of mainstream entertainment. Mm-hmm. They pushed the envelope, but they weren't pushing it all that far. Right, yeah. Like, it was just the idea that, wait, because remember, it comes out kind of at peak Cosby Show clone. Mm-hmm, true. That everything is 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 v- these weird, vapid, empty family sitcoms. And just the idea that Bart disagreed with mom and dad. Oh my God, shocking! Ah, well, Even remember it, it was also paired with married with children. Yeah, which was that same idea that yeah. it, was, it was just that the family doesn't get along. Gasp. Yeah, and that and that was all it took. But both those shows, especially their first few seasons, still adhered. They still stuck within the boundaries. Mm-hmm. Something like South Park comes out, it did not. They did that on purpose, and it blew people's minds. Um, 
comic books have always done that same thing. Mm, very true. Very true. At least, at least post Wortham, because it it was that idea that in the minds of the public it was kid stuff, even when it wasn't, and that was the um. Uh, you talk about who the audience was, even with your mainstream stuff. That mm-hmm. was uh, when Marvel started doing reader surveys in in the seventies. They discovered that their their they thought their audience was basically like eight to twelve year olds, and they discovered most of their readers were like sixteen to twenty. At least the ones responding to the surveys who could afford the stamps were. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, you think about that. That's that survey is going to be a little bit skewed. It would, but it was it was the idea that that idea of like a late teen audience hmm. was was unheard of at the time. Nobody thought that that was who was reading reading the comics, even though it, it was. Right. Well, if you'd seen the comics that had come out over the previous decade or so, you'd know why Stanley wanted to quit and why people <laughs> felt that way. <laughs> I mean, are you talking about that- Zebra Batman? I'm talking about Space Batman. That's what I'm talking oh. about. <laughs> well, and and you're and you're right. And again, it it was yeah yeah, it was that idea that just something like Stan Lee that he wrote a continuing story. Nobody thought you could do that. Mm. Well, nobody thought the audience would stick around, or yeah, or, and that the audience would get lost if you didn't. Although, admittedly, each of the early Marvel magazine comics, whatever you want to call them, were basically still self-contained stories. I mean, you had to know who Spider-Man was, but beyond that, you could kind of read them in any order, mostly. I mean, you've made a point before that the first 10 issues of Spider-Man or first 10 are kind of one story, which I would agree with, and then everything else after that just becomes generic episodes. Yeah. So they did kind of build on things like that, like early Spider-Man going, well, I need to make money. I think I'll go see the Fantastic Four look rich. I think I'll go hang out with them and see how much they'll pay me. Things like that. You know, early Spider-Man did actually kind of make sense. He was kind of writing a young adult story in a way about this Mm -hmm. character of Peter Parker, this young adult who got superpowers and then suddenly found himself using them in different ways to help people and had to decide between human selfishness and between being selfless and everything. And um, he really was a hero that the audience could relate to because in a lot of ways he represented his audience. Mm -hmm. And of course, remember, Spider-Man was not the first character he came up with. Stan Lee's original idea was, of course, the Fantastic Four because that was his take on the Avengers, which his boss wanted him to do. Or sorry, uh, Justice League, sorry, not Avengers. And then it was once that took off that Stan Lee felt brave enough to try something different and that different thing was Spider-Man. Yeah. And then when he got felt really different and was and was getting cheese at those damn dirty hippies, he created Iron Man. <laughs> yeah, actually, it's funny you mentioned that Fantastic Four because they were basically the married with children version of the Justice League. They pretty much were, weren't they? Yeah. No, I was gonna say, especially once you get the first past the first couple issues, that you get it becomes uh, Cap's kooky quartet, as they're known in comic circles, um, which is, if I recall right, is Captain America, Hawkeye, uh, Scarlet Witch, and Quicksilver. Or mm-hmm. I think that was the four of them. And um, it, for the longest time, that's kind of what the Avengers was. And then these other characters would kind of drop in, like Iron Man or Thor or other, from time to time. But it also became kind of this foursome, battling the forces of evil. And they did not get along, especially Quicksilver was a real jerk. <laughs> so yeah. 
So he was kind of the yeah the bud of the uh, of the sh- yeah actually it really was married with children actually now that I think about it yeah it pretty much was yeah because that that starts right back with the Fantastic Four because it was that idea of what Stanley called heroes with problems mm-hmm. yeah it was just that idea of what if our hero and their life isn't completely squeaky clean what if we yeah. we add complication and nobody had done that it pushes the envelope that little bit, but it's just enough to make this new thing. And then once you do that new thing, you bring in that new kind of fan. And once you start bringing that new kind of fan, Mm -hmm. you change the audience, which opens up what kind of things it's capable for you to do. Right. So as you say, it's a reciprocal action. Yeah. By change, each, each change that you make, changes the audience and that audience change makes you change as well and goes back and forth yeah like that was the problem with um the seduction of the innocent report was that once you get it in your head that comic books are strictly kid stuff you only write stuff for kids so mm-hmm. then when you look at your audience you go well it's just kids that's that's why uh that's why because it becomes self-fulfilling prophecy mm-hmm and it's why if uh, you've ever read about a lot of the independent guys mm-hmm. that did the, uh, the the underground comics like the late 60s, early 70s, a lot of them loved the old EC stuff. Right. And that was why they, they, they did the things that they did, that it was that principle of, of pushing things, not just pushing like the gratuitous gore and, and such, but... What can we do? What kind of stories can we do? Because after Seduction of the Innocent, they all still loved comics, but they couldn't read what was coming out because they were aging up. They'd had these other interests. They had that taste of EC stuff. Um, Like a lot of their books, they weren't just gratuitous. They were well done. Mm -hmm. Very they they were they were challenging to the audience. That was that was the EC twist. It was because it it violated your expectations at every turn and that was what made them cool and when you take that away of course the audience changes now they can only be kid stuff because you've dictated that you will only write things that kids will get something out of right makes total sense i completely agree with that yeah and going back to your heroes with problems comment there for a second it makes me think that yeah so in many ways, the DC characters have are traditionally modeled, and you hear this constantly referenced, so this is not an original thought, um, on the Greek gods, right? The, mm-hmm. the DC characters are, you know, gods with maybe the problems of people at kind of, sort of, maybe. You know, Batman whines about losing his parents, for example. Um, but uh, Martha! Anyway, the point is, is that... Um, Why did you say that name? <laughs> Sorry, man. Sorry. Anyway, so the point is, is that they were They come from that, you know, larger than life. They're the models, the paragons, the the characters that we're supposed to look up to and everything. Whereas I would argue that what Marvel did by doing the their quote unquote heroes with problems was they made them into sympathetic characters and more human characters by giving them those problems. They said, yeah, these are people that have acquired the powers of gods and they're still people, though. So they still have all these problems that you can relate to. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I've often felt is very important in entertainment is sympathy. Um, right. That if you want your audience to actually care about your characters, they have to sympathize with them to some degree. Right. 
generally speaking, there are exceptions, Judge Dredd, but generally speaking, <laughs> I would say that usually they have to sympathize. Actually, even in Judge Dredd, though, I would say often the audience sympathizes with either Dredd as in uh, as in a kind of power fantasy thing. That's, there's a different kinds of sympathy, right? It's not always feeling sorry for them. Or they often sometimes sympathize with the um, the perps that Dredd is dealing with, which I think is more common. But uh, it depends... There's... It depends on who the audience is, though. Yeah, there's there's a catch, and this this is going to come back later on. Mm-hmm. Judge Dredd's an interesting example because it's a British comic. Oh, yes, it is. Mm-hmm. And I remember when it first started coming over to America, like the uh, Eagle Comics mm-hmm. was doing uh, like traditional comic book, like American comic book, comic book collections of the Judge Dredd stories in, like, the early 80s. Right, yes. And this weird thing happened that if you were reading, like, the British ones, they would talk about how Dredd was popular in America. But this was the 80s. This was, like, like peak Charles Bronson, Schwarzenegger, tough guy uh-huh. cop. And the British fans thought it was weird because to a British reader, mm-hmm. Dredd was a fascist bastard. That was kind of the point of most of the stories. Yep. Whereas to the American audience, they're all like, yeah, that's how things should be, man. The cops should just kick down your door and gun down all the bad guys. And it freaked a lot of the British fans out that the Americans were getting this radically different take on the character and the stories. Yeah. No, no, that makes total sense. And yeah, when it, when it was coming over, you're exactly right. I mean, it was Schwarzenegger, Stallone, Charles Bronson, all, all those guys, because America was kind of a crime-ridden, you know, cesspot. At least that's how New York was back in those days. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and as an end result, people wanted someone to come in and clean up the streets. And so they read Judge Dredd and they thought, wow, that's exactly what, that's that's who we need. We need guys like him. Because yeah. if you think about it, he's the American ideal. He's ultimately a cowboy. You know, the lone gunman who comes in and brings justice with him by settling the bad guys once and for all. Yeah, and there's, there's another... Uh, catch to that that you've kind of hit on already Mm -hmm. and it goes with the idea of um, because Dread is a comic book and we have different expectations of different genres at that time that Dread started coming over uh, here in North America basically the superheroes had won oh yeah and it was uh, like the Marvel style thing like the X-Men and that Mm -hmm. that were were the, the dominant kind of idea so that idea of um, like a gritty, troubled, troubling, over-the-top, self-righteous kind of hero mm-hmm. was already baked in to like the, Nor- the, the North American ideal in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Because it, it goes back again to like what you're saying about uh, Stan Lee made characters you could sympathize with. Mm-hmm. When you look at something like Spider-Man, Spider-Man... With great power comes great responsibility. In a lot of ways, that parallels adolescence. Yes, it does. You get new abilities, but you have new responsibility. When mm-hmm. you get kind of just before Judge Dredd becomes a thing, you get the X-Men. Right. And the X-Men, in a lot of ways, typified what at least the dominant attitude of the 70s and the 80s as to who read comic books and why in North America, by then, superheroes were it. Like, the X-Men by the early 80s was, like, the biggest comic going. Mm-hmm. And there was the idea that they represented what was 
typified as the uh, 14-year-old male power fantasy. Right. And it appealed to the stereotypical nerd because the whole point of the X-Men was that uh, they were considered outcasts Mm -hmm. because they were weird. But what made them weird also made them super powerful and awesome. Exactly. Yeah. And that was sort of the dominant attitude working its way into into comics and this is one of the reasons why a lot of superheroes of the day were grr, angry because it was this idea that you were dealing with the notion of these characters that were outcasts and looked down upon but were better than everyone else because of the very things that made them like get looked down upon yeah yeah and 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 that was where that idea of like the 14 year old power fantasy comes in and then like i say if you bring something like dread over that had that little bit of nuance. Mm-hmm. American comic books did not have that little bit of nuance in general at the time. So, of course, it's going to be taken different when it shows up here. Yeah, that makes sense. And despite what, you know, the British fans were being told, Dredd was known, but I don't, I would still argue he wasn't really that popular during the 1980s and such when, it, when he was brought over here. He was still kind of a curiosity, I would argue, for most mainstream fans. Yeah. For for the underground, well, correction, the no undergrounds then. For the independent scene, uh, Dread was a known commodity. And a lot of the mainstream guys, and this is what you'll find with any entertainment, mm-hmm. they draw from, there, there's like the underground scene, the underground music scene, the underground movie scene, the independent comic scene. Right. Is where the creators would go to see the stuff that's wild and crazy and then they would use it for the more mainstream stuff. They draw from it, and you get kind of um kind of a more contained, watered down version. Right. Makes sense. And and you you saw that with it. Like Dread was known because Judge Dread popped up a lot in early eighties mainstream comics, but you probably didn't notice. Okay. In, infamously there's one of the uh the teen early teen titans, the Marvel Wolfman super whiny ones from the eighties that were crazy popular. Right, right. And there's a cover that it's supposed to be, I think it's like a, from a comic convention, it's a stereotypical nerd, and they've got like badges with all the different superhero symbols on, and one of them is Judge Dredd's badge. Right. And most people, like you say, the mainstream fans wouldn't have known who Dredd was. Right. The independent types did, because the the Eagle comics, they, they did fairly well when they came out. I would argue probably the creators knew. Like, remember, you know, at this point... Comic creation is basically New York, to a lesser degree Chicago, but mostly New York, at least for mainstreams anyway. And yeah. they all knew each other, Marvel, DC, etc. They all hung out together and such. And yeah, I'm sure they were all reading Dread. I'm sure, I have very little doubts that the creators were reading Dread, most of them anyway. And the yeah. it's just that the audience for mainstream stuff wasn't. Only, the, only, only those in the know were reading Dread. Yeah, or those that weren't really into mainstream stuff. Yeah. Also, remember, you had to have access to those Eagle comics, which required a comic short store back in the day. Yeah. Or and if you were like so. us, hmm? you, you could, if you were like us, some of the newsstands would get the actual 2000 ADs from Britain. I think that only happened because we're in Canada. Okay. Yeah, it might. I yeah. mean, in New York, I'm sure you could. In New York, I'm sure. But if you were in like Peoria, Illinois or something like that, I bet no. I bet the only way you'd see it would be the Eagle reprints or something like that. Yeah, um, yeah, because yeah, we had a we had a we called a multi mag. I've mentioned it before on the show. We down in downtown London, Ontario, where we could and they had 
magazines and everything from all over the world and including the dread comics and the other stuff they used to have that so occasionally we'd drop by and look at stuff but since i was i was a mainstream guy not an indie guy you know i kind of turned up my nose at it it was my friend chad who actually cared about dread not me mm-hmm. tisk tisk yeah well you know chad's a weird guy anyway <laughs> mm-hmm. this this ties into something else too because if you remember by the mid 80s mm-hmm. Uh, you had a bunch of companies that were trying to bring Japanese comics over and it wasn't working. Right. And I think, again, it's because the Japanese stuff had even more nuance. And not just that, you had heroes that could lose. I think there's another problem with the stuff that they brought over in the 80s. And we can talk uh-huh. more about this. Well, we might as well talk about it now. Um, in the 80s, especially the early mid 80s, the Japanese stuff was on a run just like the American stuff. By which I mean, if you look at the Japanese, especially the the boys' comics, the Shonen Jump heroes of the early eighties, we've got uh, we got uh, Ryo Seba from City Hunter, we've got uh, Fist of the North Star, Kenshiro, we've got JoJo from JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, we've got a whole bunch like they are all American style superheroes almost like they're the big tough muscle guys basically who are out there like you know kicking butt. They're they're gods basically is what they are. They're not that much different from a DC hero. Superman can fight Kinshiro. That would totally work. And you, you wouldn't even bl- blink an eye. Probably better Batman versus Kinshiro. But whatever. Kinshiro would manage because he's Kinshiro. The point is, is that the, the Japanese stuff, a boys comics that was coming out at that time, I think would have been a huge hit in the United States. I really do. Because I think it really was. To, uh, partly because they were mom- mimicking what they were getting from American movies. Like... Mm-hmm. They were taking ideas from American cinema, the action movies, the larger, and they were going, oh, what if we do like our own comic takes on them? And so that's why, you know, because Kenshiro famously is Bruce Lee in a post-apocalyptic setting, and except they just upped up the manliness and, you know, the the muscles and everything like that, right? Right. Um, And so they were doing, and even City Hunter to a degree is still one, you know, is an early American or early is an early 80s American, um, you know, action hero. They just comedied and perverted him up a little bit. But mm-hmm. anyway, so my point is, is that no, there was tons of these types of characters coming out. But looking back, if you look back on what they brought over, see, the thing is, is that the people that were bringing over the Japanese stuff, it was Eclipse, if I remember right, back in the day, and yeah. um, some some from first, etc. They generally were coming at it from an independent lens, I would say, independent mm-hmm. comics lens. And so what they tried to bring over was they tried to bring over stuff that wasn't just more, you know, superhero crap type stuff. They tried to bring over slightly more uh, nuanced, more artistic stuff. So we got stuff like Area 88, for example, um, or we got stuff like Grey. And we got mm. uh, and we got all these titles that that's great, but that's not what the average North American audience was craving at that time. If they had brought over Fist of the North Star in like 1985 or 86 or whatever, I think it would have had a much different reaction. In fact, actually, and I can almost prove it because one of the very first comics they brought over at that time that is still a hit today is Lone Wolf and Cub. Right. And what and why? Partly because it had the nuance and everything, but it was still ultimately about a very macho, very over-the-top, you know, masculine character going out and kicking ass. And that's I think ultimately what it was. 
it wasn't gray where he's like, yes, there's action. Yes, there's sci-fi, but he's ultimately, it's kind of this parable about existence and everything's like, or Area 88 with, with Shin crawling across the desert after he's crashed and like, oh, I miss my family so much and my girlfriend's so awesome. It's like, oh, okay, Shin, whatever. Anyway, the point is, sorry, I know, I'm just, I love Area 88, I do. But, <laughs> but the point being that they got too artsy for their own good. And I think that's why American Japanese comics that were imported during the 80s failed. That's my take. Over to you, Don. I think there's a catch to your catch, though. Okay. Because they did bring Fist of the North Star over, and they brought uh, GoGo 13 over, and neither one of them did very well. Uh, Area 88 was, I think, probably the longest running of the books that they brought over. Of the Eclipse ones, yes. Um, I would... There is only okay. My counterpoint to that: Google thirteen doesn't surprise me that it didn't work because Google thirteen, as we've I think we've mentioned in the show before, was basically meant to be a James Bond ripoff, and he's very much a sixties Bond character. Like he's got that tone and style and everything. So I totally get why Google thirteen didn't work with that audience. I actually do. I know he's the gunman, he's the tough guy, but he's different enough that I don't. He's just a little bit too different, I think, for it to work. Their attempt to bring over Fist of the North Star. Okay, you got me there. <laughs> well, because but but Fist of the North Star, I think, illustrates it. Mm. That part of the problem is what we were getting at earlier. Was that you're right that they were kind of looking at it from an independent angle, but I think what they were doing is they had no idea who their audience was or would be, mm-hmm. and that's why they brought over all these different crazy books to begin with because they wanted to see what would go over. Uh, I think you get something like Lone Wolf and Cub went over because um, Fuel Japan was was cool at the time. Like oh, yeah. That, that was Max Ninja at that point. Uh, First Comics had a little bit of mainstream cred at that point. Yes. And the problem you were having is it was that everybody had, it goes back to the expectation, that, say, the people who would have loved Fist of the North Star... Mm-hmm didn't touch it because well, it's not like a Marvel book. Well, no, it is yeah. like a Marvel book because it's giant guys punching each other out. It's just, can Shiro finish them off when like, you know, Batman or Spider-Man doesn't, mm-hmm. but it was that preconception. It was that idea that now it's, it's the, the reciprocity It's coming from the audience that they have very specific expectations, very specific ruts that they're in mm-hmm. and they're not willing to get out of them at this point. Okay, that's fair. I mean, as you said, it was peak Marvel back at that point, and I think that comic fandom, the fandom that would have read Fist of the North Star, I will agree, was probably too focused on the Marvel style and the Marvel stuff to really stop and pay attention to it. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. Even in, as a mainstream comics reader of the time, that would include me, although I, I was aware of the Japanese stuff. But even even I didn't pick up Fist of the North Star. I did get Grey and some of the others, but I but Fist of the North Star was one I just looked at. I kind of knew what it was, but I'm just kind of like, eh, not really my cup of tea. Mm. Which it wasn't at the time. Now I, I think Fist of the North Star is great, but and if I'd seen the anime, I probably would have loved it. But the comic just didn't quite art style wise and that appeal to me when I was like all hype about like superheroes at the time, which I was. Yeah. Yeah, and, and remember at that point when you're getting around like eighty six the independents are on the decline again because the the Marvels and the DCs have moved into the comic shops. The speculators are starting up, so they only want known names. Yep. 
and the fans that are still sticking around, like I say, they're they're hype on their Marvel and or DC. Yeah. Yep, you were buying one or the other. Those were your two options. Unless you were a speculator. Speculator, they were buying 10 copies of everything that came out. Well, that really only happened in after TMNT, though. Yeah, but that's the early on. TMNT is still like 83, 84. Oh, that's true. I always think of TMNT as being like more mid late 80s but i guess you're right it's actually more early 80s huh yeah it's it's people think that because uh the ninja turtles are the cartoon in most people's minds oh right yes even though the comic the comic had been running for about five years before the cartoon started yeah that makes sense but it was already a mass sensation even I, i this is something easy to forget it was a huge sensation before the cartoon ever started but only within comic circles Yep. And it was mainstreamed after the cartoon started. Yep. And it's also mm-hmm. it's also illustrative of a weird thing for North American comics. Right. I don't know why, but your anthro comics are super susceptible to trends. I if I have to guess, this is just off the top of my head, I would say they're super susceptible to trends because they are, you might hate me to say, hate me for saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway. They are insecure. So mm-hmm. they're, they're kind of like a teenage girl. They're super insecure and they don't quite know what their identity is and they want to be loved and they want to be popular. So therefore they very easily fall into trends if people pay attention to them and like them. Or So like a teenage girl, if you compliment her about, I'm being mean to teenage girls but whatever compliment her <laughs> about her like oh that hair looks really good on you that's the hairstyle she's going to be wearing for a while especially if she likes and or appreciates you she's that's that's her hairstyle she's like okay this works for me i'll go with this and and variations thereof until until that changes right and the furries are kind of the same way the anthropomorphic books tended tend to like they they want to do anthropomorphics but they do want that main they want people to appreciate them and understand them and so they're they're constantly chasing that um attention that's my take anyway what do you think yeah i i don't think it kind of works that way simply because what it almost seems happens for the anthro stuff above say like superheroes don't do this mm-hmm. is that when you get each cycle when the next big thing comes around, it seems to bring its own audience. So that the old audience kind of like mm-hmm. like gets steamrolled by the new one. So basically, like when Albedo comes out, all anthro comics suddenly became like super serious hard sci-fi until the Ninja Turtles. And then the Ninja Turtles take off and they bring like a whole new wave of fans in. Mm-hmm. And then every anthro comic, now part of this is a money grab, every anthro comic then all of a sudden becomes yeah, a something, 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 something. Yeah, yeah. And then what ends up happening when you get near the end of the 80s, the one that gets all the attention was Omaha. So every anthro comic becomes a sex comic. And I don't think the people that were reading like like preteen, dirty jean, geriatric gerbils was now reading Omaha. It's like those fans just kind of like vanish and a new crop of fans pops up. So actually, based on what you just said, I would argue we're both right. Or or, okay. or, or what we're saying doesn't conflict. Even you were talking about in terms of attention. Whatever gets, whatever gets the attention 
the they hop on the artists hop on partly because well they want to get paid and they do also want respect and everything etc and inadvertently going on with our theme of the episode they also bring in a different audience um and the old audience who aren't quite as happy with this new direction some of them leave and some new people come in and yeah there we go there's our new audience right if you're happy with them you stay if you're not happy you leave and but it's Mm -hmm. it's it's weird though that for that that like branch of comics it works like pompeii right like if you look at superhero if you look at superheroes when ninjas become popular Mm -hmm. well chris claremont just starts writing ninjas he doesn't all of a sudden vanish like you know that's true and 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 same with larry hammer and gi joe um but but yeah it's 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 one of those things that yeah like i said each wave of the ant through comics is like a total it's it's how comics it's the only genre that still works how they did in the 50s where they just keep reinventing themselves yeah and like every three years your old audience moves on to something else and you're starting like from scratch with like a new audience okay but is it the same artists no it's like other than you'll get like a couple of hangers on that end Mm -hmm. up sort of being their own thing. So you'll get like Stan Sakai. Right, of course. He never but leaves. U- he doesn't change no. either. He doesn't know those trends. No, he doesn't. Because Usagi's sort of its own thing separate from everything else. Yes, it is. But whenever you get these new waves, no, all it, it's like the old writers and the old artists is like most of them, they just vanish. Sometimes they're still doing stuff. Mm-hmm. But you just never hear of it. They're 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 gone. And it's like I said, it's like just a whole new a whole new thing. I don't know if it's some kind of weird cannibal thing or something, but yeah, it's like, it's the only genre of comics that that seems to happen to. Right. Unless you go back to the fifties with all the genres of comics that disappeared. But even then those guys, when, when jungle comics weren't popular anymore, like Alex Thoth just went on to do like animation and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. He just moved around. And I assume that's still true for any type of comic, right? Mm hmm. I mean, the artists simply have to adapt because they have bills to pay. Yeah. And then it's... You work for... Okay, fine. I want to draw funny animals. My stuff is no longer selling because it's no no longer hardcore sci-fi. Okay, fine. I'll go work for Disney now or something. Yeah. And that's... There's a lot of the the independent guy. We've talked to a couple of them that did that, that they just suddenly disappear from comics because now they're doing like hardcore animation types work and stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. Which makes sense. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you got to make a living. So, and you've got these talents and skills. So you get changed with whatever's going on in the current creative environment. Basically, whatever people are willing to pay for. Again, going mm-hmm. back to the audience. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so we talked about uh, American and we talked about underground and mainstream. We've talked about a little bit about European. Well, we talked about British, but mm-hmm. we didn't talk so much about um, European comics. So how are European and British comics different from each other? This is I in terms think, of the audience. But, I mean, of course. Yeah, British comics, and it's hard to believe. From what I can tell, for for the vast majority of of their history, British comics were like American comics, considered mostly kid stuff. Mm-hmm. Which is weird when you think about Judge Dredd, right? Like with with the violence and even the social commentary that for for most of its run like it's 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 first like 10 15 years it was considered a kids book you would see like ads for kids products in that in 2000 AD 
Right. And and people were cool with the, with the, the levels of mayhem in it. When you, you go to Europe and when you say European, you're talking like a French and Belgian comics, mm-hmm. uh, some German comics, Italian comics. There was always this weird attitude above and beyond like American or Japanese or British ones that comics were kind of a type of literature. Mm-hmm. That they were more serious, they were more sober, there was more more craftsmanship, and they were considered to have kind of more societal value. Right. Which is, isn't the right word, but it was that idea that they weren't always considered lowbrow entertainment. Here, they consider them art. They basically look at them as just another art form. Yeah, it's it, art. I, I'd want to be careful about saying that, too, because it's not just that they're an art form. It's that they're legitimate entertainment. Okay. Because sometimes those work in different directions. We're saying the same thing, mm-hmm. but they'll be like, say a movie comes out that becomes considered a high art, even though it was made to be entertainment. Fair enough. Okay, fair enough. So it it, it it was that they were still making stuff that was entertainment, but because it was considered to have sort of more worth mm-hmm. than we would consider comics, there tended to be more craftsmanship. And production was different. Like, this is why things would stay in print. They do compilations. Uh, like here in North America, the Tintin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tintin started in the 1950s. You can still go to a bookstore if you can find one and buy Tintin graphic novels. Probably. Oh, um, no, you can. Okay. Or you, okay. Can, go, or, or you can go to Amazon. Yeah, you can definitely get them on Amazon. I Last yeah. time I was in a bookstore that I happened to look at the, well, you know, the American stuff or the stuff that we're talking about here, I could find, I don't think I could find Tintin, but I could find Asterix. Asterix is always there. Yeah. Tintin's usually in the kids section. Yes. Yeah, I know. I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. But it it was that idea that it was considered, they were more of a story and not a license. Like Mm -hmm. Batman isn't a character. He's a license. And that's why they'll always be Batman as long as he sells. A license to print money, baby. Yeah. And when you look at the comics, the comics would just change to fit the times because there's always going to be Batman as long as they sell. Mm-hmm. Whereas the European stuff, it tends to be that once this story happens, it happens and that's it. We don't revisit it. We don't redo it. We don't, you know, like jazz it up for the current generation. It happened. That's the story. It's it's like, um, well, I was going to say it's like nobody does like the hip hop version of Shakespeare, except they totally do. They do. But... But the original play is still is still the original play, and it's still accessible. It's not that it gets completely steamrolled over by one of the later iterations. That's true. So that's what European stuff is like. And then partly because of that, uh, you got all kinds of different uh, different iterations on things. One of the like what we were talking about beforehand here was, if I wanted to do an actual, like, say, uh, Italian porn comic, mm-hmm. I really have to work at it because the level of sexuality in a regular Italian comic is fairly high. Yes, it is, sir. And 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 again, it's it's because it's considered legitimate entertainment for like an adult mind. Mm-hmm. And the side effect of that is, uh, even when they do get really porny. There's still a high level of craftsmanship. There's still a story. There's still like very technical art, mm-hmm. and it's kind of weird as a North American to 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 rationalize that because 
anything that we did with high sexual content in North America, it wasn't generally like even the underground stuff. It was meant to kind of be read and experienced and then you move on. It wasn't considered something that was going to last through the ages. Right. Yeah. So there's a certain immediacy. There's a certain disposableness. Part of it's the the production. Mm hmm that we didn't really start doing collections of comic books until the 70s. And even then, it was very few. Like, the Carl Burke stuff mm -hmm. would get collected. The EC stuff would get collected. Uh, you started to see paperback collections of newspaper strips. Mm -hmm. Yep. But it, but again, they were considered legitimate entertainment. Yeah, so that they were sense. art, basically, yeah. Yeah, like the European stuff. So that's where when you get to the point where the European stuff starts coming over here in like the uh, early nineties, mm -hmm. you've got this weird perception. Like by then, if you were still doing an independent comic, you were doing an image ripoff or you were doing porn like that. That was what independent comics were in the nineties. Yes. Yes, they were. Yeah. And then when the European stuff started coming over, it was an odd thing because it looked like a porn comic, but there was a story to it. Yeah, what's up with that? And I think that that was one of the things that you get when you get to, say, the 2000s. And you look at, like, say, web comics and a lot of independently produced stuff. It starts looking more like the Europeans in that there'll be questionable, quote-unquote, adult situations but they're being handled in a weirdly adult way because it'll be part of the story. It'll be, mm -hmm. it'll be actually, somebody's actually writing this. It's not just like a jerk rag or nothing. Right. Yeah. And it's, again, it's because you get that taste of something a generation earlier and it sets up a different concept in the mind of part of your audience. Okay. And that then, makes sense. And then once you do that, you've got this new audience. You can do new things to the point that, if you look at a, especially Marvel, a Marvel comic nowadays looks like a European comic. I and had noticed that. Yep, because look, they do the flat colors, they do the thin line work, they do the uh, the fewer panels with oh, more wait. detail. I think I can partly explain that though. Okay, I think that a lot of the um, Marvel, what I know, being the I'm going to use the I'm going to say a bad word now, cheap bastards that they are. Um, one of the things they're doing being a mega entertainment company is they're mostly using South American and European artists. They're not even using that many American artists anymore. I definitely know they're using a bunch of South Americans these days because they're cheaper. Yeah. And that, that was what you had in the seventies as well. That was, yeah. uh, so, and those South American artists and European, obviously were grew up on European comics. Yep. So therefore, they're they're drawing from the European, and they're often hybridizing the American, European, and Japanese style to kind of their own thing. Yep, and then it ties in with the idea too that if you look at, um, well, we don't really have an independent comic scene in North America because it's all an independent comic scene now. It is, yeah, yeah. But the last like five or ten years, a lot of European comics have been coming over. They've been getting proper translations. And and again, I think it's that reciprocal effect. It's that when you get to the 2000s and the uh, shine is starting to come off of the Japanese stuff, because once the comic uh, collapse happens in North America, a North American comic book is a Japanese comic book. 
Like that's, that's when the translations kick in. And again, I think we've talked about it because the kids who make your next generation were cool with this stuff. Like mm-hmm. superhero comics were the things that dad obsessed about. Yep. Uh, Yu-Gi-Oh was awesome. So that was the thing. And then once that shine started going, the European stuff came in possibly because like what you're saying, this idea that they were using the, the, the cheaper artists from Europe, mm-hmm. um, I wouldn't be surprised if it's also that you had that taste for it develop because there was kind of um, a running subculture of it in North America. There always has been since the 80s, since, uh, say, heavy metal. Mm, oh, yeah. was it, You had this kind of subcurrent, but it kind of starts taking off, like I say again, when you get to the end of the 90s, at the beginning of the 2000s, because I think it's always been there. And once the Japanese stuff starts becoming old hat people started noticing that and then being post-internet you had access to that yes yeah and people were reading the european stuff online they could see translations of it around Mm -hmm. some of it anyway yeah well there's a lot of it and there's a lot of it that you didn't get you could get untranslated yeah well or if you speak french you're doing fine yeah basically (laughs) Um, because pretty much all of it's available in French. It's just a matter of whether you can speak French or, or Spanish. Spanish, I imagine most of it's available in too. Yeah, there's a lot because, uh, uh, South America has its own scene too. Mm-hmm. And Central America does as well. And it works different from, from, uh, Britain, America, Europe, or Japan. Right. Cause again, it's, it's that idea. We were, we were talking about this a couple days ago mm-hmm. that I always thought it was weird that essentially like a Mexican comic looks a lot like um, an old school American comic, mm-hmm. like a kid's comic with yeah, the T with the TNA cranked up to 11. Yes. And then, yeah, we found out that it's because in, in like central America comic books, again, were general entertainment. It wasn't considered, they weren't considered highbrow, but it, it was something that, you know, like an older person would pick up and read. Right. What was the name of that? That strip about the the chicken, isn't it? Oh, Condorito. Condorito, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. We'll, we'll put a link in the show notes to Condorito, so the audience can see what you're talking about. Yeah, it's it's, and again, it's it's not a super obscure comic like that. No, that's apparently not. No, there's just a movie came out actually not too long ago. I'm assuming animated. CGI, yeah. Oh wow, I can only imagine what that's like. <laughs> Well, the the boobs don't have to follow gravity then, so that kind of works. True, and and again, it's it's and it, it ties in because, like I say, it's it's this idea that you get that weird effect for the audience that what they what's it's perceived who your audience is dictates mm-hmm. what you do, yep. which dictates who your audience becomes, which dictates what you can do. Right. Yeah. So it is a cycle. Mm-hmm. As, as you said right from the beginning, it, it, it is a cycle. It is this circular event. And that's one of the problems that creators often forget. Like, And I think some of it's just because, I mean, you know, the cre- creators, especially a lot of younger ones, they are focused on their own lives and the stuff they like. They just want to do more of the stuff they like. They don't actually think in terms of, well, it, they. I guess they think in terms of if I just do more of the stuff I like, the audience will naturally like it because – they like that stuff and that's a, that's as deep as they usually go in terms of thinking about the audience i think 
Oh yeah, that's that's because if you look at like uh, uh, the '90s North American comic book scene post Image, mm-hmm. what was every story? Well, it's like a group of superheroes, and it's Wolverine, 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 Cyclops, and the Chick, and that was like Ninja every chick. comic Ninja yeah. Chick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that was every single. Co- it was because what did what did the the the, the current crop of 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 comic creators were the fans mm-hmm. and what what were they the fans of wolverine 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 the x-men and breasts yes so, they were that's exactly so very, that, that's it you got it man you got it that's exactly it mm-hmm. <laughs> well because yeah they were all a bunch of young men mostly in their early 20s or whatever so breasts are just an obvious one and they oh, all grew yeah. up reading the x-men and uh who was their favorite character let me think um so yeah that's what obviously that's, that's cypher hmm? <laughs> obviously it was cypher Obvi- oh yeah cypher everyone loved <laughs> cypher that's why he kept dying <laughs> and and then it, it ties in like to look, reflect on the the 90s north america comic scene because we talked about this years ago mm-hmm. before podcasts were a thing right yeah one of the weird things you get because you're always working under some kind of constraints for acceptability mm-hmm from society at large and from your fans. Yep. And when you get to the 90s, basically you always want to up the ante. So, especially with regard to TNA, there was always you're always up in it. Like the 90s comics, especially Image and Image ripoffs were, were notorious for that. You got to the point where the costumes couldn't get any skimpier or else you'd become one of those porn comics. Mhm. So that was why you've got, like, the ridiculous proportions that, you know, like, all the female characters had. Oh, yeah. So they'd be, like, you know, their their measurements would be 195, 6, 28. Yeah, pretty much. And and it was because, again, you want to up that TNA. That's one of the attractions. That's one of the, 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 the puerile kicks the audience mm-hmm. gets from your material. But you have to do it in such a way that doesn't jump into that other category in the minds of, of your audience and society at large. And that's why you'll get weird, ridiculous trends like that. Yes. Yes, you will. Well, let's face it. They were all just chasing money. I mean, you know, Lee field and friends, they all, they all made their literary millions of dollars um, based on like ripping off the X-Men. So everyone did that because they wanted to make their millions too and be loved and adored and make millions. It's money. It's all about the money. It It is, and the money comes from the audience. So you've got to placate the audience. And then, like I say, that's where you'll get weird effects because you end up in those different constraints that right. I make the breasts bigger to draw attention to them mm-hmm. because if I actually make the costumes any skimpier, I'll end up showing a nipple and then I move into a different category and I lose my audience and now I have to cater and develop a whole new one. Exactly. Although it can be kind of funny if you're aware of that, reading those old books at some point, because the number of times that female superheroes get attacked while they're sleeping so that they have to fight in their underwear and or and or fight topless <laughs> is just astounding, actually, with the shadows yeah. or other debris that always just covering their nipples just by accident, really. Yeah, and, and and it goes to I think the most ridiculous and horrifying version of that. Mm-hmm. Oh, I can't remember what comic it was, 
But there's a comic. It's it's it's. I think it was an actual image book where the one character ends up traveling through time, and of course, mm-hmm. she ends up having to be naked doing it. Of course, yes. And what the scene was, it was her naked in the past in one of the gas chambers in Auschwitz, and the gas was just barely covering up her naughty bits. Right. And it's like, wow, I'm kind of glad Fred Wortham is dead now, because holy shit, he would write eight more books on just that panel alone. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sure some audience member can find it. If you uh, do find the panel Don's referring to, please go to ObeyTheDNA.com and post a link in or, the comment section. Yeah, or or don't, because that whole thing like it can be lost to history and humanity will, will benefit. Well, that's true. But, Good point. Never mind. <laughs> but it's it's the idea that people will see things like that and they don't understand that it doesn't just happen because the, the writer is a disturbed individual. It's... It's environmental as well because of all these weird constraints. So you need that shock value. You need that titillation. Mm. How can I put them together without jumping into a different category? Yep. And then you get really, what? Kind of shit like that. <laughs> you do. Yes, that's absolutely true. I agree with you completely. Although, I still think a lot of it is just that that comic creators and artists tend to be very myopic. As I said earlier, they're only really thinking about themselves. Oh, definitely. So as an end result, you get stuff like that because they've, in a lot of cases, I think they've internalized a lot of the rules. And so they've internalized the Like they don't think about that stuff about, okay, we, we, we can go only so far, but then we have to cover this because otherwise we'll turn to a porn comic. I don't really think they consciously think that most of the time, maybe their editor does, if there is one, um, <laughs> But usually they just think, okay, what's the most I can get away with without, and you know, and make myself happy and make my audience happy. And yeah, not be called a porn comic, I guess. I mean, they kind of internally know the rules, but actually that goes, here's a weird side story. So I was just watching the, what's sometimes called the Man With No Name trilogy by Sergio Leone. Um, also as the dollar trilogy, you know, fistful of dollars, few dollars more, etc. I was watching them on the weekend. And I was reading some some trivia about them, and apparently, when Leone made those films, he was making like there's these are the spaghetti westerns as they're known, and he made these films with his own sensibilities. Um, you know, they're an Italian director. He's making these westerns in Spain because westerns have kind of dropped off in America, but they're still super popular in Europe. So he's making them for a domestic audience, etc. But with American actors. But what Leone didn't know at the time was, is that there were a whole bunch of conventions about what you could and could not do on screen in a Western. Mm-hmm. And some of them were really weird. Like, for example, did you know that, that there was actually a convention that you couldn't show the, the hero and the villain character during the gunfight in a single shot? Huh. You weren't supposed to show that. Um, and then there's more general stuff like you, you weren't allowed to have a rape scene. There's actually a whole list of things that you weren't supposed to do. None mm. of which Leone knew, so he did everything. <laughs> he did all this stuff. And so one of the things I think is fascinating is what he was doing was he was subconsciously, again, unaware, breaking all the rules. So that when the North American Western fans saw it, it became something completely different to them than the Westerns they were used to because Leone was... It was different, like, and he was breaking all these rules they didn't know existed, but existed mm-hmm. within Hollywood, but didn't exist in the minds of the audience. Right. 
And so, and I think that that's one of the things that's happened with going back to what we were talking about about international comics coming to North America and such is that one of the reasons they live or die is are they breaking the rules or, or correction are they presenting something that's different enough in a in a way that appeals to the audience that are reading them or buying the comics as the case may be. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, that's so I thought that was fascinating. How about that that. Yeah, if someone if you're coming in and you're often the the rules are broken by people that don't even know they're breaking them and that's what changes <laughs> things. Right. So, now actually I think that's a good point actually for us to kind of shift over a bit to okay, so what specifically do readers get from comic books? Like let's talk in a little more detail. We've been talking in generalities so far. I mean, okay, about stimulation. And of course, sexuality, well, duh, okay? There's sexuality and power fantasy. I mean, one could argue that the entire pantheon of North American comic books, mainstream comic books even, and definitely some indies, are built on power fantasy and sexuality. Would right. you would you disagree? Uh no. <laughs> <laughs> um and but what's fascinating, going back to Europeans, such as Leone, who had just mentioned and such, is that the European stuff, because they're, as you mentioned earlier, they're more mature. And so they tend to build their stuff on, well, actually, to be honest, power, fantasy, and sexuality, except it's just a lot less blatant, at least if we're talking about the Europeans. They just put in, they put sexuality first, and then they have a little bit of power fantasy, because it's often about, at least the stuff that you most often see from Europe is usually more about, uh, like, cool dudes, you know, doing stuff, or, or, or hot chicks doing stuff. It's the case, maybe, if you want to combine the sexuality and power fantasy elements. Um, but I want to talk specifically a little bit about what people often get from comics, and I'm going to use my lens that I'm most used to, and Don's somewhat familiar with it as well, um, of Japanese comic books and manga. Because I, I want to talk about how um, manga, in a lot of ways, and again, or I'm referring to comics in general, but I'm going to talk specifically about manga in this case, um, kind of fell into this thing where it's very, it has a very specific set of needs that I've noticed it tends to fill in its readers. At least mainstream manga, the, the basically the stuff for young men is what I'm mostly referring to. But the stuff for women, same. They all, partly because, um, of course, Japanese comic books are, again, for everyone. It's almost like television, as Don has commented in Japan, really. Comics are, it's like saying television. Because there's different kinds of shows on TV. There's different types of, you know, uh, comics in the, in the ma- magazines. That's just the way it works, right? And so... I was thinking a lot recently about how, um, and this is partly what inspired this podcast episode, about, you know, what exactly the audience is getting from it. Because here's the thing, is that when a reader reads something, they actually, their brain is kind of tricked. And this applies to, this applies to movies, it applies to books, it applies to television, or television, comics, etc. It's all the same, really. When we're entertained by a story... Our brain doesn't know the difference between the experience that's happened to the main character, especially if we're bonded with them emotionally or connected with them, and ourselves, our own real person. So if good thing, if stuff happens that makes the character happy, it often makes us happy to some degree. If stuff happen, bad things happen to the character, we feel sad. It's that reciprocal thing, that's, it's that empathy that's built into human beings. But we're connecting with fictional characters. And one of the things the Japanese have done is, is that they have done their, they've kind of worked out by doing, you know, tens of thousands of comic books, basically. <laughs> they've worked, they've, they've, they've kind of almost made an art form out of what care, what the audience gets from the different comics. 
it's not quite a standardized thing. But anyway, my, my point is this is, is that because they've done this so much, they've actually tapped into something that I think is universal that they, um, it, well, it is universal because it's based on universal human needs. And I think that's one of the reasons why manga, especially these days and the last 20 years, really, does always seem to find a strong audience in North America. It's not just because we're used to it. It's not just because we culturally want it. It's because I think it resonates with us. At least some of the more popular manga titles do. Not everything, but mm -hmm. uh, many of them do. And I think a lot of it's based off what are called uh, human needs. And so... I thought first, so before I go on any in any more detail or start rambling about this, I actually kind of want to, I, I want to stop and uh, talk about a guy named Abraham Maslow. You're familiar with Maslow, right, Don? Yeah, a little. A little. Yeah, you, you've heard of him. Yeah, yeah. That psychology class, <laughs> I think we took together, actually. Um, and so what, what idea did Maslow come up with? He's the, the pyramid guy. Yeah, that's what everyone knows exactly. He he helped the Egyptians build the pyramids. And in the process... That's right. <laughs> what? Sorry? Because he was an alien. <laughs> alien time traveler because he went back in time and helped them build the pyramids. Oh, oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> anyway. So, okay. So, Ma Abraham Maslow, as you said, is the was known for the pyramid guy, which is how they visualize a thing Maslow created called the, his hierarchy of needs. Basically, Abraham Maslow had the idea that every human being has a set of needs they need fulfilled in their life to be, well, not just happy. It starts with alive and then eventually goes to being happy. <laughs> it kind of works its way up. And it's presented as a pyramid because these things generally become more specific and detailed the higher you go. And also the more advanced, the higher you go. So that's, that's why it's usually shown as a pyramid shape. I'll link to it in the show notes, but just to very quickly go through. So there are there are different versions of the pyramid, but the basic pyramid has five levels to it, or five categories. On the basic level, you have what's called the physiological needs. In other words, the needs of your body, the things you need. So air, water, food, shelter, sleep, clothing, reproduction, sex. You know, these are all things that we basically need in one degree or another to survive. Like to, as, as organisms, these, these are the things we need. Sex is on that list because if we don't reproduce, you know, our species dies out. It's that, it's that fundamental. And air, water, you know, food, pretty self-explanatory, <laughs> right? And some people, I mean, some people like Dawn doesn't need sleep, but the rest of us do anyway. That's why God invented caffeine. <laughs> there we go. And so that's at the bottom of the pyramid. And so just to visualize it, so that's, those, that's the widest, it's the base that everything else is basically built on. If you don't have your physiological needs met, yeah, you're probably dying or dead, one of the two, or very, very unhappy, as the case may be. All right, if you're not sleeping, especially. Up above that, we've got safety needs. That's the next level up. This is like personal safety. This is employment, being able to get the resources you need to survive and um, be successful, health. Health is kind of important and property. Um, so to own something or to feel that you have, you know, that you have some control over your life, etc. That's those are safety needs. You, you could call it safety and security. That works too. It sometimes is called that. But key point again is that these safety needs are the things that you need to feel secure in your life and happy. Right. The middle of the pyramid is love and belonging. So this is friendship, intimacy, family, sense of connection. You know, our connection, basically society, our connection with the people around us. We need these things, uh, those connections with the world around us. Going up another level, we got esteem. This is respect, self-esteem, status, recognition, strength, freedom. So basically 
other people liking us and us liking ourselves. That's pretty much what esteem is, that, that, we're, that we're admired, that we're liked, etc. And then at the very top of the pyramid, that top, is self-actualization, which is a really fancy way of saying the desire to become all you can be by joining the American army. Um, or just, you know, being your best self, being you, uh, being, being the guy or girl or whatever you want to be. All right. And so these work in fundamental, as long as you've got the basics, the physiological needs, you're generally, okay, you're alive. Safety makes you start to feel secure and feel better about yourself. Love and belonging makes you start to feel happy. Esteem makes you feel like really happy with yourself and self-actualization means like you're the you you are the perfect version of yourself basically you're as good as you can be now the reason i bring these these needs up is is that to some degree i would argue that a good story and i'm going to specifically refer to manga in this case that some of the better some of the better manga stories are actually filling these needs and in fact i came i thinking it through i came up with 12 specific things that manga tend to do to their audience to and have their characters experience, etc., that gener- that fulfill these needs and make their audience happy to one degree or another. Now, this varies depending on your um, depending on which audience we're talking about, the mm-hmm. sex of the audience, um, the age of the audience, uh, the social status of the audience. There can be many different things. Mostly, what I'm going to be talking about today with this list is is based on shonen manga for the most part, although I would argue these things apply to almost all of them, but shonen or young men manga, basically the equivalent to like the age group, basically teen men, young men, etc. for the most part, and younger women as well to some degree, and teen women, etc. So one other thing I want to bring up, and I briefly mentioned this earlier. So back in the um, early days of manga, we did two whole episodes about manga. You can go back and check, but short version is this is that early manga was kind of all over the place because they didn't really have a mold. They kind of didn't know didn't know exactly what they were doing. Um, and if you look at stuff from like the 60s and the 70s, you will find that it tends to be kind of, uh, especially with boys stuff, will tend to be boys adventure stuff. So you'll have this young male hero, obviously male, but young male hero who will basically, he'll become a race car driver or he'll join the football squad or he'll, you know... Do, Typical young male, male young adult stuff, basically. And you'll find a lot of that. Or he'll get a giant robot given to him by his uncle um, after his grandfather dies or some, or whatever. And uh, he'll use it to battle the forces of uh, lost ancient civilization. Uh, and that would be Great Messenger from 1972. Um, and Or, yeah, any of the stuff from that period. If you look at Shonen Jump covers yeah. from this period, you can see it. It's all race car stuff and sports stuff and... <laughs> Like it, they they didn't even really go into the uh, spy stuff until later. There, it's more it's it's action, but maybe a little military action. But it's definitely what we call boys' adventure stuff, or yeah. at least that's what the Brits would call it. Anyway, would you agreed on? Yeah, there's 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 I think a couple of odd catches, but I think for the most part, yeah, you're you're right. It's 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 the kind of stuff. It, it, it's again we're talking uh, about mainstream we're not talking about the gekiga which is you know where <laughs> where the where lone wolf and cub comes from and the other that's a whole other kettle of fish that's meant for adults right that's even the japanese yeah. did that where it's like manga kids gekiga adults they did that thing 
yeah, there, there's a catch. Because what you're also seeing, too, and this, this ties into your list, a lot of the stuff that came out for the Shonen stuff, especially the early 50s and 60s, mm-hmm. it was like uh, like uh, highlights for Japanese kids. It was They tried to focus on activities that the kid could, could theoretically do, like mm-hmm. race car driver might not. But it was also stuff, it was very um, affirming and socially acceptable stuff. Right. Absolutely. I agree with that. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why, yeah, as I said, race car driver, sports, you know, mountain climber, you know, they did a lot of that kind of stuff, especially. And you can see this if you look at the early Shonen Jump covers. That's mostly what I'm basing this off of, because you can tell what the contents are kind of by looking at the covers and seeing what what they're promoting. There was some other stuff um, like uh, Ashino Joe, Tomorrow's Joe. Okay. They did that. There was some, especially once that's actually, no, that's more of the 70s. Because once we get to the yeah. 70s, the American comics start to have more of an influence, I would argue. And so we get, um, that was on TV, but Gotcha Man, I don't think, there wasn't a manga version for Gotcha Man first, if I recall right. It is a, just completely a TV show. But there There's was... A co- hmm? There was a comic. The comic came after the show, but yeah. there was a comic. Okay, but it did come after, is my point. Um but there was stuff like Tomorrow's Joe, uh, which is a boxing comic, but it's like much more gritty. It's like about this, you know, tough kid from a bad background in a bad part of the town, you know, trying to fight, get out of the slums by being a boxer. Um, and you start to get that kind of thing. Where, but in a way, they were simply taking the uh, stuff from the 60s and kind of grittying it up. Uh, that is the way I would describe it. Plus, yeah. plus so they were working in some horror and some other superhero stuff as well. Yeah, what 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 happened with the Japanese stuff is when you get to the 60s going into the 70s, they have their underground comic scene as well, except theirs is very much above ground. Mm-hmm. So that that that's where like you say the idea of the anti-hero cuz uh uh no Joe the the hero is a juvenile delinquent who ends up in prison in the beginning of the book. That's why he gets into boxing, something to do while he's in prison. Mm-hmm. And it's that idea that um, which leads to, to the Gekiga, like you were saying. The earliest stuff, it was still perceived very much as kid stuff. So that's why you didn't want to do anything unwholesome. Mm-hmm. When you get to the 60s, the, the kids from the 50s are now teenagers or young adults. So it's that idea they're craving something a little heavier. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I, I think to tie into your idea that it um, what the audience is getting keys in with with psychological needs of a human being Mm. when you get near that age when you're a teenager when you're a young adult when you're setting starting out a lot of that like happy tree family kind of stuff really doesn't ring true yeah and that's why you see that that gritty stuff because you're realizing that just working hard and respecting your parents doesn't really get you that far in life. You have to knuckle under. You have to eat some shit once in a while. That kind of thing. Yep. And then that's where something like Ashton Joe comes from. Yeah, exactly. And then we got the 80s, which of course in Japan, going back to the idea of context from earlier, was a boom time in Japan. Suddenly, you know, the 80s, they had their great... Basically, all that hard work of the salarymen burning themselves out in the 60s and 70s to rebuild the Japanese economy paid off. And Japan was suddenly, well, they're basically what China is now. They were basically selling all the world's electronics, pretty much. And they were the factory yeah. of the world for a little while there. And that was mostly in the 60s and 70s. That's why that's why the air was so dirty, because they were producing everything. <laughs> and then in the 80s, 
they find they basically became they went from being a white collar or blue collar society to a white collar society. And suddenly everything's affluent. And Japan in the 80s is a really fascinating place and time that I could go on about for a while. But the key point is, is that thing, there's a sudden kind of shift. And also they're watching a lot of American movies. So you can see, as I mentioned earlier, how a lot of 80s Japanese comics are very... Um, suddenly you go from, yeah, like the, the young heroes who are the tough guy to more fantasy-based stuff. So we get Fist of the North Star, which is ultimately still a fantasy about this, you know, unbeatable martial artist guy wandering across a post-apocalyptic landscape. We got City Hunter, who's basically the ultimate, like, secret agent type character, except he's a, like, private detective and super pervy. And he's so always trying to get looks at, you know, naked women and, uh, you know, and get girls in bed and everything. And but but when needs call for it, he is massive. He's like a god of uh, god of combat, among other things. Um, and that an interesting balance. And there's a whole lot of other characters from that period. Uh, the original JoJo, of course, as well. First generation JoJo um, that are like yeah. that. And there these there's these big buff guys, and they're battling things out. And hell, there's even one of my favorites is there was um, there's a medical comic from that time. I think he's called is it Dr. K. I'm trying to remember, but it's basically imagine Fist of the North Star, except he's a doctor in modern day. Oh, yeah. And he's, but he's so drawn, like Fist of the, he's still got all the muscles and the, like all the dramatic stuff and that, except he's a surgeon and he's doing surgical stuff. <laughs> and it's, oh my God, just the juxtaposition is so weird. But everyone was like that back then. They just thought, okay, this is what you do. You draw big muscle guys. That's how, that's how this works. And... Oh. Then by the late 80s, I think it's 87, but I have to check, you basically get into um, a certain comic comes around. Well, in mid-80s, there's a certain comic called Dragon Ball that comes around. And then eventually, in the, I believe it's the late 80s, it runs its course. And the they basically beg Toriyama, the creator of Dragon Ball, to like up the... Uh, to basically, can you do something? But add a little more action to it. And so he did... He basically did a time jump and re and rebooted Dragon Ball into what we know today as Dragon Ball Z, basically. Um, although in Japan, it really was just dra more Dragon Ball. It wasn't actually Dragon Ball Z, but that's not the point. Because uh, the original Dragon Ball is about young Goku, and then Dragon Ball Z happens. And Dragon Ball Z is super important because Dragon Ball Z will, will become half of the template for pretty much all young adult Japanese entertainment, for boys anyway, coming forward after this. Because as we talked about in the... Um, one episode, literally Dragon Ball Z doubled Shonen Jump subscription, maybe tripled it by itself. It was like the most pop, one of the most popular things in the book ever possible. And people loved the hell out of it. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the guys fighting, if you haven't seen Dragon Ball Z, you're living under a rock. Go, go check, go find <laughs> it. Um, you, you've seen it. <laughs> you, you, you've seen it somewhere. Trust me, you've yeah. seen it. It's still one of the most popular things on earth for that reason. However, there is another book that was almost equally as popular or comic i should say manga that was almost equally as popular as dragon ball z at the time that never really picked up in north america that never got the notice here it deserved but in asia was super popular almost dragon ball z is equal and is still popular and that was called slam dunk mm -hmm. slam dunk as the title suggests is actually a basketball manga um, about a we'll call him a 
slightly pervy, ne'er-do-well loser, basically high school student, who ends up joining for various reasons, I think it's to get laid actually, to join joins the school basketball team because he thinks, oh, this will be easy. It's just some stupid guys playing basketball. And then eventually discovers that he that it's a lot harder than he thought. And he kind of, it basically turns into a rivalry between him and some of the other players. And it it's it's what we would call today a bromance, basically. Like it's a sports comic, but it's ultimately about the, re- the relationships of the team members and how they help each other grow and develop as people and they work together. And it's very aspirational overall. Um, and I'm crap, I'm forgetting the name of the lead, of the lead character. Ah, oh, yeah. I've even Sakuragi. Watched... Oh, yeah, 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 him. There we go. Yeah. Um, I, I've even, I've actually watched Slam Drunk, and if you want to see it, you can see it on Crunchyroll, or you can probably find translations of it online. It is still, to this day, almost equally as popular in Dragon Ball in Asia, even though it came out like 30 years ago. It's still super popular. But North Americans never, ironically enough, got into the sports manga the same way. Except for Prince of Tennis for some reason, which I've never figured yeah. out, but whatever. <laughs> Prince of Tennis. Okay, sure. Whatever, guys. Anyway. I think the sequel starts up soon to that one. So, whatever. You can actually... <laughs> uh, anyway, no, neither here nor there. Point is, why do I bring up these two titles? Well, Dragon Ball and Slam Dunk. Well, because what happened is, so they came out in the late 80s and the early 90s. And, the, you know, they, they, were, they were super mega hits and they were very, very popular. And... Eventually, though, all good things come to an end. So by I believe they both came to an end roughly around the mid-90s, basically. Mid, mid, mid-90s. Yeah. And so Shonen Jump was like, okay, those are our, like those are our two stars. What do we do? And so they kind of put out the call and they looked at what their submissions were. And they eventually picked a, a small book that you might also have heard of called Naruto. Um, and by Masashi Kishimoto. And they thought, oh, this thing about this ninja kids has some potential, so let's do that. Now, I bring this up because essentially what happened is Naruto, I'm using as an example, you could also use One Piece or almost anything that comes out during this time. They Almost all of them took the action of, of Dragon Ball and the romances of Slam Dunk and merged them together like a giant Japanese robot to form a new <laughs> titan. And that basically became the formula for Japanese animation, manga, light novels, entertainment, at least young boys entertainment, pretty much to this day. Like, I would argue that, in fact, if I look at uh, Shonen Jump, I was just reading it this week because you can find it online. Um, There's a couple titles in there like um, Jujutsu Kaisen. There's also Sakamoto Days. There's a there's a couple other ones as well. Uh, Kane Banashi that are all basically still ultimately using the formula that Naruto pioneered because basically Naruto became Naruto was probably the ur example of bringing together the bromance and the character stuff and the action and the tournament. Yeah, the tur- and the tournament that part the too. The tournament. <laughs> yeah, they brought the tournament stuff together. Anyway, so that's so so also it's also a shift over because if you look at the stuff like even Dragon Ball or uh, not so much Slam Dunk, but definitely the '80s stuff and that the heroes of that time in Japanese animation tend to, or and manga tend to be um, like they're the big tough guys as we mentioned, right? They're the they're more like Superman or Batman. They're these like ter- you know larger than life characters. Whereas the characters of Shonen Jump and what will come afterwards tend to be more 
ironically enough, going back to what Don was talking about with the 50s and 60s, they're more like the actual audience. Like mm -hmm. there are young men who, uh, who are just trying to find their way in the world and find their direction and everything. And so as an end result, we get these characters and Rudo again is a perfect example of it that are very aspirational and that are going through life and that are going through these hard times. Usually they start at the bottom and it's basically about them working their way up to the top in these aspirational stories that lead to, yeah, that, that basically make the, that the audience gets into, they, they start at the bottom, they, they, they develop some skill. They eventually get involved in some kind of tournaments more, more or less, especially if it's a martial arts one. Um, mm -hmm. They have conflicts with various rivals. They make friends as they go along, often with their rivals. And they, you know, eventually at the end, they end up becoming like the leader of their people or whatever. Okay. And what I realized by doing analysis of them and thinking about them way too much, um, I did write a whole book on how to write <laughs> manga, um, is that what's actually going on is they're following Maslow's pyramid that I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. There are specific elements of the pyramid that they're following, but ultimately, though a typical Japanese manga of this mold, and a, usually a boy's manga of one kind or another, but I would argue that this is somewhat universal, is still basically fulfilling all those basic human needs, the characters and by, by default, the audience are getting these needs out of their entertainment. So anyway, so enough uh, dancing around it. So what are my 12 needs that I think that, that Japanese manga are fulfilling? <laughs> Let's talk about each of them briefly and then we'll kind of bring it all together. Um, so, all right. So I'm going to start at the bottom of the pyramid and work, the, work my way up for what they're delivering. And you, and by the way, so a lot of these you'll probably notice will actually apply to even American or European stuff as well, but to different degrees. All right, so let's go for it. But remember, this is for so basically they're working with a young adult formula. This is a you know, formula for young adult men, basically, or at least these are the needs that they're applying to young adult men that their audience has, and therefore the manga is giving them. So number one, sex. Bet you didn't think I was going there, but the truth is they do. <laughs> um, now we're not talking about porn sex; we're talking about sexuality. So your average like shonen manga, for example, is going to have some art that is going to have, obviously, since it's meant for boys and, you know, heterosexual boys, it's going to have some naked chicks or at least, you know, some women in some tight outfits. I notice these days they tend to be more just the tight outfit thing because the Japanese at a certain point got really uptight about, um, you know, nudity and such. If you go back far enough in even in the boys stuff, you'll find lots of nudity. I mean, back in the 80s. Yeah. Um, and the 70s, and lesser degree than 90s, Dragon Ball has a fair amount of nudity in it if you go back and look at it. Um, so, But anyways, you know, drawings that are going to be sexually stimulating. Sexually stimulating visuals that basically are going to provide the audience with a feeling of happiness because, ooh, look at her, she's cute, and she's, you know, got a nice rack, whatever else. So that, that one's pretty obvious, right? So that's physiological, well, starting right at the bottom. There's an add addition to that, I'd say, though. Oh, okay, sure. Because... The, the 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 hierarchy of needs kind of applies to the industry as a whole. And I think we have to come back to that after mm -hmm. we go through what you're getting at here. But one of the things that changes with the, the sexuality as well is mm -hmm. uh, when you get the 80s of the bubble economy. Right, yeah. And the average Japanese person's feeling pretty good about life because... There was a lot of employment. There was a lot of high pay. The money was rolling in. You also get that that this idea for for sexuality. I'm also going to say for for especially the shonen stuff. 
what it meant to be a man changes. I, yes, I would definitely agree. And in fact, actually, if you want to bring that in, just to, to just to build on what you were just saying a second ago, so the 80s is the bubble economy, but the bubble bursts in the 90s. So yeah. by the time the Naruto formula comes around, Japan is no longer the uh, Kenshiro. It's no longer the massive guy. It's <laughs> now the scrappy fighter who's try, trying to get back on his feet again. Yeah. And the, the catch that you get with that as well is... Mm-hmm. When you've got that bubble economy, one of the things that happens is you can experiment entertainment-wise. And that's one of the reasons Japan had such a huge variety of comics, because people had money to throw around to pick up. I don't know. It might be something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. When you get to the 90s and the bubble is burst, people sort of lose interest. You're looking for the next big thing. It's harder to find, so they do what we do here. They start aging down, so you want to bring the kids in. So that's one reason why... Mm-hmm. You no longer see, like, the main shonen character is giant Kenshiro with no nipples for some or chest hair for some reason, but mm-hmm. Peck's the size of bigger than his skull. It's the younger character, the character starting out, because that's who you're perceiving your audience is now. You're aiming for to bring in those kids yep. because that lets you cultivate a new audience and you can sell them more stuff. I would absolutely agree. Uh, one side note is that um, actually, Japanese men don't have much chest hair. They they have yeah, a little but, they have a little bit, but they don't have, but they don't have a lot. Not compared to we you know a gorilla like North Americans and Europeans. True. Um, and, I've been and in a Japanese men's bath. I actually know. I've I've actually had I've had that experience. <laughs> so I so I know what they look like naked. Ugh. Anyway, so. <laughs> see, it's hard for me to relate because even by North American standards, I have a pelt. So well, there is that exactly. Well, you're no dog, but you know, <laughs> no, but who is? So <laughs> that's but, true. Um, but this, uh, Tor Johnson, see, apparently. But anyway, there you go. <laughs> see now, see this also ties in with what you were saying about the levels of TNA. You don't have nudity anymore hmm. because you're aiming for that younger audience, so you tone it down a little yep. bit. And like you said, they had their Senate subcommittee Fred Wortham thing happen. In like the 2000s. So that kind of put a chill on the sort of stuff that you had before. And because people don't have the money to spend on entertainment that they did, you don't want to take risks by pushing that envelope too far. So that's again why you start seeing all of the the more wildness contracting when you get to the 90s. Yep. No, I would agree with all of that. Actually, another weird side note, especially when it comes to sexuality, is what kind of happened is it's actually Tokyo that's done it. Um, mm-hmm. What happened is the governor of Tokyo, because Tokyo is so freaking huge, it's considered its own kind of state, sub-state within Japan, is basically the governor of Tokyo basically went on this like crusade to basically purify comic books. Well, basically to do away with high school of the dead is what it amounted to. Yeah, well, there's that too, yeah. But but uh, but so, so and because Tokyo is, I believe it's one third of the Japanese population, um, basically when the Tokyo, the Tokyo standards immediately got applied to everything in Japan, no matter what. Tokyo is yeah. kind of the Texas of, um, or California, take your pick, of Japan, where if they change their laws... Everyone else has to change theirs too, basically, to match them. Yeah, that's pretty much how it works. Anyway, so moving right along, so that's number. So that's um, number one: the sexuality, physiological, um, on the level of uh, safety. 
for because we move up to I would actually argue that manga characters usually are exist in a safe environment now that might sound really strange considering most of them are usually fighting for their life um but you know in between I've noticed something that a lot of characters and a lot of the settings that mon- like okay let's take a step back if you look at the older stuff, like say Ashino Joe, we've mentioned earlier, a lot of the char- or or Chris the North Star, a lot of the characters ex- tended to exist in these really rough post-apocalyptic settings, right? Mm-hmm. They're in this really rough environment where they're kind of fighting for their survival. Interestingly enough, I find a lot of the shonen stuff. Now this varies, shonen stuff, and even to a lesser degree, the isekai stuff, um, the modern stuff where you get transported to a fantasy world thanks to Truck Coon. The characters often build either they exist in or build this kind of bubble of we'll call it family and happiness around them that's kind of a safe place okay so for example in the case of naruto uh because i'm going to use that as my er example or that he's got kohona village which is this happy ninja village where all this stuff's going on and that's what he's working to protect right but it's mm-hmm. still at the same time offers it's also still a place where he feels loved and safe and everything at the same time. It's a reciprocal relationship going since where that's the term of the show. Um, and so the characters in the story are given a safe environment where they're they are given the love and environment that that they desire that they crave for. And in an indirect way, the audience wants that too, because again, they're connected to the character. So they feel a sa- a feeling of safety and securedness. Does that make sense? Does that make any sense? I hope so. It it does, and I have the exception that proves the rule. Oh, okay, go. Because this is another one of those things that it depends on who your audience is and who you think they are. Okay. Because if you look at time periods, like when you get the uh, Gekiga era of like the mm-hmm. late sixties, early seventies, when you've got books being written for a more mature uh, reader. Mm-hmm. That goes out the window because this is like the era of Gonagai where Gonagai characters never get to rest, ever. It's also, if you go, like, look at the early 80s, take something like uh, Urusei Yatsura. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever gets to take a day off in Urusei Yatsura. Like, Ataru is getting, like, there's stories where he's just so suffering from so much PTSD from dealing with Lum that he's sneaking around the house and peeking in closets waiting for her to jump out at him. Right, yeah. And it's because at that point your aggregate audience has aged up mm-hmm. and what you're saying, that idea of that safe, secure zone mm-hmm. doesn't make sense to say a young adult because I've got to work, I've got to worry about the rent or the mortgage, my car is broken, how do I make that payment? It doesn't feel plausible to have what you're getting at if you're at that age group. Now, when you get a little older, Mm -hmm. it's comforting. And when you're younger, that's just kind of how you think the world works anyway. Once I get run into my house, nothing bad can happen to me. Exactly. So you've got your safe base that you operate out of, and then you kind of can go out into the world and deal with the world's problems, but you always come back to it. Because remember, yeah. if we're writing for, which shonen stuff typically is, 8 to 14-year-olds, 8 to 14-year-olds, their whole world is their house, their school, their neighborhood. That's kind of it, actually. And yeah. maybe, if you, maybe their grandfather's play farm or something like that, if they have one. That's pretty much it. And so they're used to this kind of like safe environment. So that's what they relate to. If you give them an unstable environment, they don't know how to take it. So they yeah. want to have that feeling that the character has that safe. And it, as you point out, 
in modern stuff, like take a look at My Hero Academia, for example, which again is a mega popular one, again, following the Naruto formula. The characters do have their fights and everything, and then they'll do a couple issues where the characters basically just hang around, they go to the mall, they like hang around their dorm, they play pranks on each other, they do some slice of life stuff, basically, and then they'll go off on their next adventure. And they're yeah. doing that on purpose because they're establishing that friendly, happy home base that these characters live in, or home environment, and then they can go out and do other things outside. Yeah. Oh, there, there's an even better example. Oh, what? Dr. Stone. Oh, well, yeah, exactly. Where he's literally it's, building a place to be feel safe and secure. Well, and not just that, but it's it's the apocalypse. It's thirty five, like thirty eight hundred years in the future. Yep, he's in a bloody war to the death for the fate of all of humanity, and they still have cotton candy and hang out and laugh at the bad guys who end up becoming their friends and stuff. Yep. So. Yep. Exactly. That's exactly what happens. So um, it, it, it always has to kind of default back to this kind of happy, neutral tone environment where more or less, I mean, there, again, there are exceptions, but we're talking about the really big mainstream stuff at this point. Mm -hmm. And this also applies to most light novels as well. Again, the mainstream stuff, most of it. Um, yeah. Number three, to belong to a group or, you know, which is obviously love and belonging because again, and this is of course the Japanese ideal. The Japanese are a group culture, right? And so yeah. almost every story is is about the loner who, or someone who's like the reject or whoever who finds his people, who finds who who finds the ones who come to love and respect him, usually by being himself and by doing his thing, and eventually everyone comes to love him. Um, and this applies to Naruto, obviously, who is like a young ninja character who's been rejected <clears throat> by society because of a certain family issue. Um, and so therefore, everyone no, everyone rejects him except for a few people. And then the more he works hard, the more people love and respect him. And which is another, which we'll get to as well, but the more he's loved and the more he belongs to a group. like, And you'll find this, almost every shonen hero creates if they don't have one, they create a group around themselves, which is the, basically their new family who, yeah, it's that it's, that, it's their need to connect with other people and the audience, which is a, a desire that the audience has as well. Um, also going with love and belonging, obviously, there's being loved, period. And But in this case, that's mostly about, uh, I'm again, romantic love. You know, that people actually want that uh, someone cares about you. So there's always the female best friend or whoever who, like, follows the main character around and, like, loves them. Or, or if it, actually, generally, that's true. There's the female lead, and her, her main purpose is basically to be the female lead. Even in, the, even in stories where, my, like, My Hero Academia, where things are a little more, um, how should I phrase this, platonic? There's still elements of romance there. There's still a cute female lead who ultimately, you know, has a crush on the main character and who the audience sits there and cheers will get together and probably will by the end of the story. But right now the guy's too busy kicking butt, so he doesn't have time for her. <laughs> but she still pines away and everyone's like, oh, she's so cute. I hope they get together and stuff. That's, that's bringing that element of love. Okay, and often the characters will also receive love from uh, family, like father figures or uncle figures or mother figures, etc. They'll have other people in their lives who give them love, which is again the love the audience wants to get as well. Right. And so that's the love and belonging stage. So there's there's the middle one. Now the 
One, though I find that manga is mostly packed on, if we're looking at this pyramid, we've already gone through the first three stages, is stage four, esteem. Like if there's anything that manga is really about, I've, I've noticed providing to its audience, it's esteem. Because remember, this is mostly written for teenagers. And teenagers, if there's one thing they don't have, it's esteem. <laughs> It does depend on the, it does depend on the uh, person, but a lot of, you know, teens, you know, are really struggling (laughs) with self identity and self-esteem and they, they, and especially if we're talking the nerdier types, oh my God, are they in desperate need of esteem? So therefore I find that a lot of these and the next couple that I'm going to mention are all based around the esteem stage. Um, that's one of the reasons why I organized it by the by his hierarchy of needs. Anyway, uh, the first one I have on the list is being picked or needed. Um, I find that in most manga you will find, and again, anime, light novels, whatever, you will find that the main character at some point is picked. They're picked by someone else. Usually an outside person, a person of authority or a person who is of higher status than they are. So Naruto, for example, gets picked by Kakashi. Uh, who is basically the team leader of his uh, gr- of his little group of ninjas? Ninjas in there are divided into groups of three, and they each have a like leader, mentor ninja that's with them. And Kakashi is Naruto's, and he but he is not just any; he's like the most high status team leader in pretty much all of Kahona Village where Naruto lives. So it's not just that he got picked by some, you know, got assigned to this guy's team. This guy actually, I believe, picked him and accepted him and said, "Okay, yeah, this this kid has potential and such." And he picked and he picks him and he works with him because exactly because of that. And in fact, later on, Naruto is also picked by another another ninja who I name uh, Jiraiya, who is mm-hmm. like one of the great three mega ninjas of all time, basically, who again picks him. So there's there's this interesting psychology there where these characters get picked. It's almost always there, or at least they're needed by some group or something. And again, that type that channels back to esteem. We all want to be picked. We all want to be needed by someone special. And you can even go, if we want to go outside manga, we can even go beyond that. I mean, you know, what's Harry Potter? Oh, he's the boy who lived and he's picked to be the chosen one. Luke Skywalker is picked. Oh, he's the last Jedi. Like, you know, it goes back to that whole chosen one trope that we see everywhere. That's what that is. It's the whole being picked or needed, being being the chosen one, the one that everyone actually wants, that everyone that has been chosen by destiny to save the world or whatever. That's that. Yeah, but hmm? I, I think, I think though you've hit upon the big difference uh, between North American and Japanese entertainment, especially comics. Okay, go. Because looking at your list, the idea of being chosen in a Japanese book and, and the whole idea of esteem looking down your list, what it's tied into mm-hmm. in a Japanese story is your role in society. Right. How much you fit in. Oh, Whereas that's a good in, point. In a Western one, you are the chosen one. It's all about being the one that doesn't fit in, the one that stands out, the one that's just inherently better than everybody else. That's, I think you're exactly right. And in Japanese, when being picked is part of the process of being integrated into society, integrated into the community in a Japanese thing. It always is, whether it's a romantic comedy or a shonen one, the main character being picked is, yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you completely. It is about, it's the beginning of a process of integration into society. And 
which is again something to, and the audience wants that especially if the audience is an outcast or feels like an outcast they want to feel that their people will pick them and come to them and they'll you know, etc whereas you're right you know luke skywalker or harry potter or whatever they're the one who's outside society who's picked to stand out from everyone else and be special yeah because you know what i find funny looking at that what at your your esteemed section which is uh steps five to eight on mm-hmm. your list nine you yeah in in, in oh yeah there it is in European comics, mm-hmm. none of that. The heroes do not seem, and any of the ones I've read, the heroes really do not give a shit about any of that. It's the last ones that are the ones that actually matter. They just skip over all of. They they don't care if they're respected. They they they're usually either um, they're usually too driven or focused to care about how they fit in. They have a mission, and that's why. Mm-hmm. They, 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 like you've read, uh, you've read Black Sad. Yep. I have. Yeah. Yeah. You've read, you've read Echo. Yep. They're just on a mission. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. yeah that, me, that's the, European me, style. Yeah. They go right. Again, going back for that God approach. I would argue that American stuff kind of does the same thing. It skips all of this and goes right to the, right to the self-actualization stage. Well, they, they do it different. They, American stuff does, they do all of that except it's the chosen one thing. Mm, yeah. So to be picked or needed is the superhero saving the day. Like, yeah, 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 you're right. Yeah. yeah. Like the whole esteem thing for for a Japanese character is how they fit into society. For an American character, it's how they inflict themselves on society. Right. Yep. And then for a European character, they just don't give a shit about society. They got shit to do. Yep, yep. Pretty much it. Yep. All right. So moving on to number six, uh, to be admired or respected. Again, everyone in their life wants, again, Steam wants to be admired and respected. And you'll find that with Shonen Heroes, that's usually one of their, like, greatest goals. Uh, Going Mm -hmm. back to Naruto, because, again, standard example, his goal is to be, is for people to respect him because he feels he's rejected and he even wants to be like the new leader that's his that's his goal is to be the next leader of his ninja village like that's mm-hmm. his whole thing he wants to be admired and respected he wants to be the one everyone looks up to because he's at the bottom of the pile and so and again something that the audience wants as well so as naruto does this they get this as well um at this next on the list now this is an interesting one that most people do not think about and you might say, what? Okay. Number seven, being praised. Now, I say that because I, I discovered an interesting thing. I was doing some reading about this, about psychology and that. And it's an interesting point that in North American society, and I think this is this seems to be actually something that's fairly common to human society, okay? Women receive a lot of praise. Men do not. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting quirk that we tend to praise women and we tend to you know, vocally admire, oh, you're doing so great. Oh, that's fantastic of that. But we don't tend to do that to men. Now, some feminists would probably say that that's, you know, that's because we're, you know, we don't expect much from women. And so therefore, but that actually, don't, I don't think that's really what's going on. I think that um, it's actually something a little bit different, where as a culture, it's just expected that men are supposed to do this. I guess you could say it's not that much different than what the feminists would say, but regardless, <laughs> um, it's basically if being praised is something that if you find men often don't praise each other 
and we don't praise uh, and we don't praise other men generally speaking. Parents will praise children to encourage them and such. But think about this: When was the last time that you gave a compliment to another guy? Like you, know, oh, nice hair, or do you, you look good, or you did a great job with that, or that kind of thing. Think about it. Not just Dawn, the audience. Now think about the last time you praised a, a woman. And you could probably come up with one. I did it this morning. I did it this morning to my wife. And I know I did. And I, um, and it's not just because I want to stay married. It's because like, <laughs> I honestly, you know, I, I honestly, I do that to, uh, you know, show my affection, respect and everything for her, etc. And I find that that's generally true. That generally, again, this does depend on the person, but generally in human culture, it does seem to be human, not just Specific, but generally speaking, people don't receive a lot of praise, and especially people who are um, not considered valuable, who are not considered, who are like outcasts or out, you know, or feel you know, um, feel they don't belong or that. They definitely are not getting a lot of praise. In fact, praise is something that they often crave deeply, especially young people. Young people really crave praise because they want to know that they're on the right track. They want to know that what they're doing with their life is the right direction. They want to feel that they're going somewhere, etc. And so this is something that you'll see a lot in um, anime and manga is the main characters being praised. Like the main male characters will often receive praise. Now they have to earn it. There's a catch for that. You know, they have to be praised for their effort and praised for what they're doing. But they do... But praise is actually an important part of it. And in fact, actually, I think I kind of doubled up there because really seven to be praised and nine to be praised for effort. Oh, no, they are a tiny bit different. We'll get to that. Actually, I'll go right to nine then, which is to be praised for effort. I'll get back to eight in a second because um, it ties in. In Japan, remember, there's that idea. Well, here, I go to the Shonen Jump motto, uh, which is... Do you remember what the Shonen Jump motto is, Don? Uh, isn't it... Uh... Isn't it a friendship, hard work, success? Something like that. Friendship, effort, victory is more or less yeah. what it translates to. You'll notice right in the middle is effort. So one of the things is, is that people want to be praised, not just for who they are, but for the work that they do. Like they want to actually feel that, that, that the work they do is important, that it's, that it's something that other people actually care about and respect, and that the effort they're putting in means something to other people that are around them. And so you'll see that that will happen to the characters as well. The characters won't just be, you know, it's not just they do something. Rock Lee from Naruto, you brought up, is like one of the best examples of that. He's a character that literally is, as, as they say in the manga, you know, Rock Lee is a genius of hard work. That's mm -hmm. literally, he's a self-made like ninja fighter. He's actually, he was actually at the very bottom. He was basically like a, basically a useless, worthless ninja because he couldn't do any ninja magic. He can't do shit. But he mm -hmm. trained himself so hard that he was a, that he actually caught up with and in some cases surpassed everyone else. Like he's the ultimate example. And you'll see if you look at the comic or if you look at the anime, you'll see they really praise him. He he receives an incredible amount of praise for it. people cry when they talk about how you know how how much effort <laughs> Rock Lee put in and everything like that. And then and and what he accomplished. Like characters like tears streaming down their faces when they talk about how him and what he did. So, yeah, so he's praised for effort, and that's really important. Oh, and number eight, which I skipped, is to be useful, which is also a steam thing. We want to feel that we that others need us, that we're not just some you know extra in society, some cog that could easily be replaced you know by whoever, 
basically around us, that we actually have a place, especially in Japanese society where everyone basically is a cog in the machine. And if you don't fit, you're a cog, you're a useless cog that belongs in the scrap heap. So, <laughs> but, you know, so the characters in all of these manga and anime, the shonen ones, will generally experience something that they're useful to other people, that other people will say, I need you. Or they will show that they're useful to others. Their their usefulness will be demonstrated in one form or another. And so so for esteem, it's being picked or needed, being admired, respected, being praised for who you are, being praised for your effort, and of course, being useful. Now, by the way, I will put this list up in the show notes as well. So anyone who any, so those of you who are uh, playing along at home can follow as well. But And those are all things that are esteem, which as Don pointed out, these are all things that are connected to being a teenager. Yeah. These are all I, th- I, things that young people need. Go. Oh, I think one of the things like seven and nine, mm-hmm. I think is another one of those places where you see the difference between like American comics and Japanese comics. Mm-hmm. Because in a Japanese comic, it is about being praised for your effort. It's that you do something, you get recognition. Yep. And I think that just being praised for who you are thing, I think that is very much more a North American one. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. So you'll you'll get that idea that like for number nine, Rock Lee will be, be praised by the other characters because he worked super hard because he doesn't have the capacity to do ninja magic. He can only do the, the techniques. And he gets praised for that. Whereas, basically, you'll see characters in like a superhero comic that will be praised for just being a nice guy. Yeah. Like, like that's kind of, kind of a running thing. Like, you know, that, no, you're part of the team. We, yeah. we love you, Logan. Don't run away. Just because. And I think that's the 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 big difference between between for for those. That's why I think yeah, you can separate them because I do think they apply more to one or the other. Okay, okay, good point. Yeah, I will also note since you brought it up, actually, I would actually argue that there have been a few North American superhero comics where you did see these, where you do you do see these pop up. Actually, the one that I can most think of is the X Men. Mm-hmm. The X books would often do this, where you would have characters who were like chosen. They would you'd have the thing where the characters needed for this mission or to accomplish things, or that you're chosen to be a member of the X Men or the New Mutants. New Mutants did it even more because it was the they were literally teenagers. Um, so you know, the characters wanted to be admired or respected by others. That was a big thing in the X Men sometimes. Praise, mm-hmm. not quite as much, although you would see that. Like, Logan would often compliment Kitty Pride and encourage her, etc. Um, yeah. So you would see, because remember, the X-Men was, the younger, the older members would, would praise the younger members because they're encouraging them. They're being parental father figures. The characters would be useful. Remember, the X-Men are useful to society. They're saving the world, right? And that's very important yeah. to them and such. And even the effort they put in, the danger room, they're constantly training. They're working to make sure that they can actually, like... To a different degrees than a Japanese book, but I think one of the things Claremont, who was a fan of anime back in the day, did pick up. Now, of course, the anime he was watching didn't do all of this. Like, it was a very different kind of anime. All uh, Yes and no, actually. Correction. A lot of the... If you go back to the 70s stuff, which Claremont would have been watching, you will see some of this happening in things in the 
dramas, anime dramas they did, like like Heidi, Girl of the Alps, and mm-hmm. um, what are the other? You, you know what I'm. There's there's a whole bunch of them that yeah. the, the these Japanese uh, takes on on like European kids basically doing crap and stuff like that. Right. They did tons of them during the 70s and during the early 80s and such. The Mysterious Cities of Gold is an example of that. Yeah. All these things. And you'll see these kinds of stories in them. You won't see as much in, say, Cyborg 009, because Cyborg 009, the Japanese like 70s superhero team, well, 60s, 70s superhero team from Ishinomori, was, that was still a superhero group, so they weren't generally doing this kind of stuff. It was more European, more more the American, European type stuff. Yeah. But, but Claremont definitely twigged onto some of this, especially, I think, I think some of it might have been him also thinking about his audience and thinking, well, I'm writing to a bunch of teenagers and I'm getting all these letters, especially going back to the whole thing. Because remember, people used to write letters to comic, comic book companies back in the day and they'd write to them and they'd say, you know, thank you. You know, I really feel, you know, I feel an outcast at sometimes and reading the X-Men makes me feel really, you know, happy and makes me feel I have a place in the world, etc. I'm sure he got tons of letters like that every month. And I'm sure some of that led to him actually bringing some of these esteem elements into the book. Yeah, it it usually manifests different for the American ones Mm -hmm. because you didn't often see the characters. They would be be praised more for them than for their effort. Like the danger, the danger room thing didn't usually end with the Professor Xavier going, excellent work, my X-Men, you're ready for battle. It's you're too slow. Magneto is going to murder you all next time you're in combat. Yes, that's true. The being useful thing, it usually worked backwards, where it wouldn't be the character being glad they're useful. It would be like Cypher hiding behind a box going, my ability to talk to everybody is useless when Sentinels are stepping on us. Because it was it was more... Japanese, especially shonen stuff, is about triumph. Mm-hmm. Whereas American superhero equivalent to shonen stuff was always about angst and that's why i i think those get they're there but they work backwards yes and no like oh let's use your cypher example from the new mutants because you know which is basically the x-men it's just x-men junior team um Mm. that story i think that was a real story actually you know here cypher i'm afraid of the sentinels and and then the rest of the team will get captured and then Mm. cypher will will use his ability to who is useless because that's all he can do is like decode stuff and that he'll use his ability to sneak into the Sentinel's base by mm-hmm. bypassing their security and rescue the rest of the team. And everyone will go, Oh, Cypher, we're so glad you saved us and everything like that. And then he'll like the Sentinels will almost catch them and Cypher will like press and you know, use his ability to bring the security system door down on the Sentinel and crush it or something. And then the team will escape and then they'll get outside and some other Sentinels will jump them and the team will defeat those Sentinels this time. But the thing is they were all the day was saved by Cypher, who was useful to the rest of the team. Yeah, after like five issues of oh my god. We're under attack. Quick, I'll I'll translate what the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants is. Bunk out of my head, thud. <laughs> you know. So. Well, and that's why eventually they teamed him up with Warlock to basically you'll be Psylocke or whatever they called it. That thing I don't remember what they called Douglock. Douglock they called him. Yeah. Where 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 basically they gave him a suit of powered armor made of one of the made of one of the other members of the team, um, who wasn't very smart, but you know that they, they they worked together and they were. Okay, fine. But they eventually did that because, yeah, people got tired. Cypher got made the butt of many jokes and eventually even killed (laughs) off, actually. Yeah. 
Okay. Actually, so so is Warlock. So there so, you well, go. And then they came back together. Because uh, that's because actually literally because they poured Warlock's remains on Cypher's grave and then they kind of merged into Douglock. Yeah. That's literally like, what happened. Like. That's literally mm-hmm. Don's like it. That's literally what happened. All right. So and to continue. So okay, so that's we got to number nine to be praised for effort. So let's move on to the top of the pyramid. The mm-hmm. the the place everyone's trying to achieve with their lives. All right, so let's go there. So number ten, to feel clever or smart, which I would argue is the first thing of self-actualization. Now, the way I usually see this manifested in manga, now this is an interesting one, is that the main characters, sometimes it's the main characters being clever or smart, but often it's the creators of the book put in some small, not too difficult to defeat challenges or puzzles, and basically challenge the reader to, to, uh, to figure them out before the character does. Mm-hmm. I see that pop up a lot where the characters put in a tricky situation and it's like, but the clues are there for how they're going to get out of it. Did you put it together before it actually happens? Yeah. You see a lot of that in Japanese stuff, especially even in the dual tournament stuff. It's like, how could I combine my three powers to work together? And it's like, the car- and, 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 but if you've been paying attention, it's like, oh, you can use the firepower to do this. If it combines it with ice, it'll form steam. And then the steam can be used to like set off the fire alarm and the fire alarm will, oh, okay, I can see how that could work. <laughs> and so I find that's there. That's how I, at least how I see them, you often presenting to feel clever or smart. It's a more direct one where they're, it's not so much the, sometimes the character, sometimes the character solves the problem and you're like, oh, like Detective Conan, it's like, oh, okay, I get that too. Okay, yeah. But often the clues are usually there. It's almost done more like a mystery. Um, number 11, to move on, is to feel special or powerful. That's again a special a self-actualization one where the and then this is where you get into the whole the character being you know better than everyone else at least in some aspect of their ability or life you know so the main character in a manga or anime is not going to be normal they're gonna be they're gonna be special in some way they're gonna be better at something than everyone else and if they don't start that way they eventually will be um, usually especially if it's a shonen hero they have something special like. Uh, here's Naruto is being an obvious example, and he's a perfect example of this, where the shonen heroes, but this comes from Dragon Ball, actually, they always have like a powered up mode. You know, they, they have their normal ninja abilities, but then if when the chips are really down, they can call upon their inner strength or their inner demon, or in Naruto's case, literally inner demon, and go into power mode and then absolutely kick all the ass, which is something that no one else can do except maybe one or two villains. Yeah. And that's the whole special thing. Although, interestingly enough, special can mean different things. Um, I was thinking about this earlier today, where to be special can even mean knowing things that other people don't know. Right. Um, and I, that doesn't just mean martial arts knowledge. That could be being, well, Detective Conan's case is literally being the smartest guy in the room. But it could even be things like having a secret. Like, even if you think about it, even having a secret identity is technically makes you special because you know something everyone else doesn't. Mm-hmm. Or if you're the guy who knows that your your teacher is secretly a superhero or something. Okay. So this this runs a pretty wide gambit, really. But I'd say, but definitely there's some element of the main character being special or feeling power or being powerful. And that's something that the audience desires because, you know, again, young people, they want to feel they have control over their lives. They want to feel that they can change the world. And so seeing this other character that can change the world makes them feel happy as well. 
it's it's funny you mention that because mm-hmm. that kind of ties into with uh number seven mm-hmm. in that post internet reality has been totally ruined. How does that time with being praised? Because essentially in real life, that's what most people's goal is, is just to be praised essentially for nothing. That's what an in, a quote unquote influencer is, or you want more likes or things like that. Like Very true. that's, be, that's become a goal unto itself, like completely removed from being praised for anything. Mm-hmm. And the idea of feeling special or powerful ties into that because if everybody's uh, kissing my ass, I feel special. If um, if I have a bajillion likes, mm-hmm. I have four million friends. Great, they can help you move brick by brick. I'm sure. Just put a message out there. It's and the idea of feeling special or powerful, like you saying, this is kind of the premise behind every piece of debate or discussion or anything that you see anywhere, mm-hmm. because. Everybody is like banking on that idea that only I and my 4 million internet buddies know that using scope secretly makes you radioactive so Tom Hanks can track you from space. (laughs) Right. Because it's all just that need, I feel special because I know something the sheeple don't. Yep. And, and it's, it's, it's one of those unfortunate things where say entertainment crosses into reality and, Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if um, one of the reasons, well, I'm wondering how much that's going to squeeze into entertainment mm-hmm. and tying in with some of our other episodes, the idea of, of reality and entertainment blurring, especially say like news and entertainment is the same thing now. Mm-hmm. If it's because of those two points happening in real life for the audience. That's an interesting point. I think that that's absolutely happening. I mean, that's where you get the, what I sometimes I think it's Jack refers to. There's our Jack reference uh, to, <laughs> to, to the, uh, was it the Harry Potter effect? I think maybe it was Jack who said that, where you've got all these kids waiting for their letter from Hogwarts. They all think yeah. that they're, they're, they all think that the whole generation of kids that are eschewing adulthood because they're still waiting for their letter from Hogwarts. They think they're special. Mm-hmm. It, it feeds into that. But mind you, I'm not just going to blame the Gen Z kids. I mean, God, we were the first generation that was raised to believe that we would be rock stars and millionaires and, uh, you know, movie stars, etc., right? Mm -hmm. And we're just realizing we're not, and we're pissed. That sounds familiar. Uh, (laughs) So so the point is, yeah, I mean, that that idea is there. Every It's like I said, these are all human needs. These are all human mm-hmm. needs. They don't they don't go away. And in the case of comic books, they absolutely are something that that that, that this is why the care one of the reasons why not just because we need them to be special, just because that's why the book is about them. But but that's why characters in these stories are almost always special in some way. Yeah, they it's, they always have that one little thing that makes them special. At least in a shonen book, anyway. But a lot of others too. Yeah, it's it's funny because it reminds me, uh, in a weird way, those two points of uh, an old nerdly saying from back in the 80s. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember, uh, reality is for people who can't handle fantasy. I have heard that one before. Yes, I do remember that. Yeah. Yeah, that puts me in mind of that, sadly. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Pretty much. 
Let's finish this list on up with number 12, which of course is to be a hero or at least the leader. Because we, and by way, humans in general, this goes along with being respected, admired, etc. But this is a form of self-actualization, I would argue, is to be the person that everyone turns to when they need help, right? right. To be the leader that's respected. And especially if we're talking young men, young boys, they all crave to be the center. They all crave to be the leader, the one that others turn to. And that's, again, a form of self-actualization, to be the, the special one, you know, not just the chosen one, but one that is acknowledged as being the special person that others gravitate around, etc. That's just a classic desire because most people aren't. So therefore, eventually, usually they don't start out that way, but eventually almost all manga heroes will become that character. Usually, just yeah. as they slowly develop this group that, that forms around them. That group that slowly you know, they pick they defeat enough people that were become their rivals slash frenemies slash what you know best buds and they just slowly be slowly become a hero and become a leader and again Naruto eventually becomes the leader of his village but before that he becomes special and acknowledged by all the lead, by all the current leaders as oh he's the number one you know young ninja of his era of his generation etc. And so, or well, number one or number two, depending on who we're talking about. But the point is, is that we're, uh, the point is to be a hero or at least the leader is something that desire for leadership is the pinnacle of self-actualization, I would argue, or one of the pinnacles anyway. Yeah, I, th I think the, the only thing that you'll see uh, mm -hmm. American and especially European comics, they they do it a little different in that. Mm -hmm. The ultimate, the ultimate isn't to be the leader. It's to have the capacity to ignore the leader. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. I could kind of see that. I mean, sort of. I mean, for example, if we look at your typical um, DC comic, okay, mm -hmm. or Marvel, but DC is a pretty good example of this. Your average DC hero, if they're in their own book, there will clearly be a whole supporting cast that right. basically look up to them and treat them as special and consider them the leader and the hero, etc. It doesn't no matter it doesn't matter what book they are, there will be that supporting cast. And if you go into the Justice League, you know, with team books, you'll generally find that there's not everyone, but the most of those other heroes become the supporting cast for whoever is the leader of that group, which is usually Superman, but occasionally Batman or some other character or Wonder Woman, some other character. Somebody has to be Hawkeye. Basically, yeah. Somebody has to be Hawkeye. <laughs> there always has to be someone on the bottom of the totem pole, so to speak. Um, and that's kind of the that's that's the way it is. There is always that power um, hierarchy, basically, that exists. That social hierarchy that exists in any comic book. So there's always going to be a leader. And if your your character is the hero of the book, he's the leader or she is. And if the if they join another hero, usually one of the two of them will be leader or they'll be fighting over who's really in charge, that kind of thing. And the same is true for action movies. It's true for manga. It's true for most things, really. Now, I would I would agree with you, though. Definitely with the European stuff, they generally don't care. Yeah. But even there, there's still some, like, for example, let's say we look at Black Sad, for example. Which mm -hmm. is about, um, we'll say, a private detective in New Orleans. The rest of it would take too long to explain to the audience. Um, except it's, it's a furry it, book. Sorry? It's, hmm? a 19, it's a 1950s like film noir detective story. Yeah, yeah. exactly. 
that happens to all be anthropomorphic characters. Um, mm-hmm. But the point, but again, if we look at him though, he is still this respected, exceptional detective and viewed and treated with respect in that and treated like a leader or leadership character by all the other characters around him. They know who he is. They respect him to some degree. He's, he might not be a great social leader, but he's still within his subculture, within his society. He still has high status. He, he does, but he, he doesn't, he uses it to, um, to not have to put up with everybody else's shit. Um, yes, I would agree with that. Yeah. To go back to like your, your American superhero examples, it's the idea like, um, like Wolverine. Mm-hmm. Stick it up your nose, Summers, I'm doing my own thing. You yeah, know? yeah. Or, or Frank Castle that just doesn't give a shit anything. Or even if you look at like, like, uh, somebody like Batman. Mm-hmm. The, the loose cannon is is kind of the ultimate ultimate because they're beyond the leader because you just yep. can't lead them yep yep that's true so so that's like bat like like Batman does that all the time yep you can keep doing your thing I'm gonna go over here summers I mean Superman and yeah exactly that's exactly the way it works yep I agree with you no I totally yep. agree whereas yeah the the Japanese one because it seems like it's always about fitting in and social mm-hmm. control if you look at that other way yes their their goal is to be the leader and it's never to be the leader so that now i can like get revenge on the people that pissed me off for that it's always to be the leader for responsible reasons they always want to be a good leader not just the guy in the the character that wants to be in charge because then they can like loot the till kind of thing never makes it in the japanese book uh s- there's a catch, which okay. is if we get into the light novels and stuff like that, what you'll see is you'll see many characters who actually, when they start out, do want to loot the till or whatever. And in fact, actually, you could even argue some of the older Japanese stuff too. But eventually, through interacting with other people, they gain that sense of belonging to the group and they gain all these other like, you know, human needs. They're, they find their human needs are being fulfilled and they become a responsible leader. Yeah. So that like it, so in the end they do. You're right, but they usually don't start out that way. Yeah, it, or whereas like uh, like I say, American one are kind of got a European one. You'll you get something like say Diabolic, where it's exactly that. Oh, yeah, that's that's true. Yeah. Or yeah, they they are they are the leader. They are the 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 you know cock and balls ruler of all known worlds, as they say specifically to get their way like that's the european i think italian comics do a whole lot of that i think spanish ones do as well actually i'm going to say something you might be surprised by or maybe not so do chinese comics if you read chinese and korean comics they're that way too like the leaders in most especially if you go check out some like chinese as they're called webtoons these days and such like that yeah, they're basically, we've talked briefly about them before. They're all these like stories about usually so isekai where they're going out, character goes off to another world and literally inflicts themselves on that world. <laughs> some of them are, some Japanese are like that too, um, like novels and such. But no, they sometimes they're outright evil. Like there are a number of Chinese comics I've read where no, the main character is just, is pretty much borderline evil. He's just slightly less evil than this than this, the people in the setting that he's inflicting himself on usually. That's, <laughs> kind, that's kind of how it works. But it's literally about being the guy who can do whatever the hell he wants. 
And right. if he encounters people that stop him from doing whatever the hell he wants, the story is about him eventually defeating them and putting them in their place and showing that he is the cock and balls master of everything. <laughs> That's right. a Chinese comic. That absolutely is how they work. Wow. <laughs> but if you think about it, China, and to a lesser degree, Korea, that actually makes sense. Because China mm-hmm. is literally this like dog-eat-dog environment where all these characters are like, all these people... They're kind of forced to be cogs, but they really have that desire to be, you know, something to be, to basically inflict themselves on the world around them, to be the one, because to be the one who can dominate everyone else, partly because they can't dominate in real life, because that's what the party does in China. Um, So that's their fantasy. And so that makes total sense. Whereas in Japan, you got all this idea that yo no you want to be part of the team right you want to be you know connected with everyone else and so we can all be one happy family together and you can have all your needs met by being the leader of this town or village or whatever mm-hmm. so yeah so that this is my 12 basic human needs that i came up with there probably are more that i'm missing maybe maybe the audience can write in the comment section if they think i'm missing anything um but that i came up with for that japanese stuff dives into Specifically because, again, they're focused on a young adult audience. Um, Although you'll find the stuff that's like seinen stuff that's for like 20-somethings, college students, 20-somethings, that isn't really any different. It just happens to have sex, drugs, and slightly more adult material. But if you pay attention, it's still doing all these human needs often as well. Yeah, I would say what the difference Mm -hmm. with uh, your seinen stuff and the difference for for Japanese for your uh, jose and even your uh, shoujo stuff, mm-hmm. it has to do that. Especially the seinen, you can fail at these. Yes, that's true. Like that. That's the whole. The jose stuff is about that too. Like a jose story, you can fail at them, and shoujo stories tend to be. Um, they tend to be about the failure of one of these and the character rebuilding it. Excellent point. Yes, I would totally agree. I would totally Cause, agree. Because that idea, like, to feel safe and, or secure, a lot of the shonen stuff, like like you were saying, the hero has some kind of base. Even, even like, I say, Dr. Stone, where there's nothing. He still has a base. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, it, but if you look at, like, a lot of the, uh, the shoujo stuff... Mm-hmm. That is totally not it. The story is based around the fact that the character does not have a secure space. Yes. Oh, absolutely. She, she does not have anywhere. She does not have anybody she can depend upon. Like, yep. it's it's getting to that point. In a lot of ways, it's sort of this list, but flipped around. Interesting. How so? Well, because if, if you look at a lot of them... Um, like the shoujo stories, I, I'm not super familiar with them. The ones I am are, are tend to be like late 70s, early 80s stuff because I watched. Oh, yeah, then that's not that's pretty different from the modern stuff. But OK, sure. Well, so, some of it, because what, what you end up seeing, like I say, in, 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 in very general terms, it would be the idea that the characters are usually, if not clever or smart, they have something that that lets them make their way through the world absolutely they do yes but they don't have any they don't have they're not admired they don't have friends they don't have connections they don't have a safe space it's using their hero-ness what makes them special or clever 
to work their way backwards down that list to get those more secure things. Okay, yes, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, yeah no, that may, that makes sense. Because they always usually have some special talent or yeah. something, which is whatever is relevant. So, for example, in Glass Mask, for example, uh, the main character, whose name I forget, but whatever, is a she's a young actress, and she's got an incredible talent for acting and uh, make, reaching people through her acting and such. And... Mm-hmm. So there, she has that incredible talent. She's recognized for that talent right at the beginning. But the thing is, you're right. She doesn't have it. She's not getting praised. She's not being uh, useful. She's not being, she's not, and th- but she does get eventually, she gets picked, of course, by an older actress to, who has a project for her, but she has to earn everything. She has to earn everything else on the list herself. You're right. As yeah, part of her training. Because the, the, the weird thing looking at it that way mm. A British girls comic, right? The character has none of these. <laughs> like they, they might have a special talent if they're lucky, right? But oh, there, there's actually the stupid comics website. We'll have to link to it. Did a a section about British girls comics where they point that out that it's just basically tragedy on tragedy on tragedy on tragedy. There's there's like never it's 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 gonna guy except instead of getting murdered by a giant robot, your life just sucks harder. Like yep yep yep. No, they they crush your family, they crush your dog, they crush everyone <laughs> around you, but it leaves you alive to to suffer. Yeah, no. Yeah, no, your family died before the story, and you don't get a dog. <laughs> oh, that's great. No, like, you, get a, you get a cruel uncle instead. Yeah, basically, that, that, oh, you've read a few. <laughs> well, I would argue yeah. that usually a lot of, uh, I would say often they're clever or smart. Usually clever, not smart. But you in those girls, I've read a few of the girls' comics. They're clever. Uh, that's probably about it. Yeah, that's probably they, about it on the list. You're right. And often I, they do have a friend or two. Sort of. Who, who who half the time gets wiped out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, so, and you're right. In a lot of ways, actually, British girls comics, I can see sometimes they might start out with these things, but they'll lose everything. It's about them losing them all instead of gaining them. Yeah, the, the, a lot of the ones I'm thinking of, mm-hmm. um, the only thing they have going for them, it's really odd, is desperation. Wow. It's, it's, it's that they just... They, 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 the characters just can't give up either because of, of sure. If, if you're reading like the, the, the horror girls comics, it's just constant sheer panic. Mm-hmm. Or if it's like the soap opera ones, it's just this desperate optimism that if only they can make it through one more day, maybe things will get better. You know? Wow. No, no, that actually makes sense. And that's also very British in a way. <laughs> yeah, I can, yeah, I can yeah, see it that. Is. Yeah. <laughs> that's definitely a British book. Yep. The only thing the character has is a hope for tomorrow. Just one more day, if I can just get through it. Yeah, like, because, c- oh my God, a lot of them are just so depressing. And I've I've read, like, a lot of, like, the horror ones. Mm-hmm. And they're even worse because that's that's where like you'll have a friend that ends up being like the evil demon that was sent to keep an eye on you, or like they get eaten by the witch in chapter three or something like that. Yep, yep. Or your best friend is a psychopath who with split personality who alternates between helping you and screwing you over. Oh yeah, what what is that one? That that's an actual comic. Yes, it is. Oh, that's a real comic. I even mentioned the show before. I wish I could remember the name. We actually talked about it last year. It's like 
Misty or Laura or something like that, where the, the, the character actually has two personalities. The character's best friend has two personalities. So when she leaves the room, the, na- the evil personality takes over and tells her parents that she was like doing drugs at school or something like that. Yeah, and, and as I recall, that's not in one of the horror ones. That's in like no. one of the more lighthearted, but like, like uh, Bunty or something. Yeah, yeah, that was in one of the light. I, I remember I read that. <laughs> I can't just can't remember what it was called today, but whatever. So as you can, I, I think this kind of brings things together actually, and I can also see why looking at this list, I can kind of see why Japanese stuff kind of won in a way, at least mm-hmm. with young adults, because the thing is. You can actually, you can, and I would actually, I would argue that uh, Harry Potter, for example, fulfills pretty much all of these needs too. Like that, this is all there as part. If you look at a Harry Potter story, etc., and that's one of the reasons why I think that manga and anime made starting late '90s until until now um, is basically following what is effectively the young adult template. At least the mainstream stuff is. And it's that young adult template that's also running in uh, YA, young adult material, like Harry Potter, for example, or um, other young adult stories that are for a general audience, uh, Percy Jackson, for example, or whatever. The point being, I, I, I mean, there's also Twilight and the other girls stuff as well. And I suspect this is all there in those to some degree as well. The whole point is it's still that fantasy right that fantasy of being the special one and you eventually get a group around you and everyone loves you and you're praised and you're useful and how clever and smart you are etc it's it's the current young adult formula basically and that's why i think young people all over the world respond to this and that's what's made manga so successful yeah i think for specifically talking about the japanese stuff Mm mm-hmm I think they lucked out because they had one thing and didn't have one thing that I think formed the core of everything you're getting at. Mm -hmm. And it's the idea that they had the bubble economy. Yes. Where, like we were saying, um, you could experiment. Mm -hmm. And that's why if you look at like the 80s, you would have comics that came like, like big giant weekly comics that were dedicated to the weird, like, like sewing. Yes. Yeah. That it's a, a a comic full of different series about sewing adventures or like yep. Mahjong or, or Pachinko because people had money. So they would take a chance on things. Yep. And that let them develop these big, vast, unique audiences and cater to them. And then they didn't have Fred Wortham. So you never had that intellectual contraction so that even when you get near the end of the 80s, the 90s, the money wasn't there to support this vast variety of stuff and these specialized things. But when you started the contraction, it all came together because what you were seeing, and I've, I've seen different things that talked about that. One of the things that you saw in like, say the, the sci-fi or even like the adventure stuff mm-hmm. was they would borrow story techniques from the Jose stuff from like yeah. the, the, the soap operas and mix that in. And that's, like what you were getting at slam dunk is what happens. You need to take a 1960s sports comic and combine it with a 1980s Jose uh, soap opera comic. Yep, exactly. So they had all of these techniques available to them to us. Whereas for us, because we, we had that idea come about early on that comics were strictly just kids stuff. Mm-hmm. We, maybe this is why, uh, we've talked before, we've lamented why for our animation and comics, we never quite made that jump 
where stuff for say an older audience was universally accepted mm-hmm. is because we never had that period where we could take all of the different elements and mix them because those elements got chopped out by by different things like again the senate subcommittee hearing for comics yeah that we we never quite put together that one thing that establishes mass appeal yep and that highly limits what we can do because going back to the very 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 beginning of this what the audience expects what the culture around the entertainment expects what they enforce on the work affects what you can do and what you can do affects your audience. And if you get caught in a bottleneck like that, you're stuck for a damn long time because it's going to be next to impossible to do that thing that breaks out of that mold and gets popular enough that everybody sees it as worthwhile. Yep. No, I totally agree with that. Although I would argue we're still looking somewhat at the past um whereas right now there's a whole comics revolution going on mostly through web comics and webtoons basically and looking at them they are their own thing they're they're definitely doing things differently than uh, than we used to um and that's allowing for astounding amounts of experimentation right because it, now anyone can produce a comic and get it out there and if an audience likes it they like it 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 does but it also creates the problem that it makes it super easy to get anything out, but it makes it incredibly difficult to develop a mass audience. Well, that's why you need sites like Webtoon, for example, which are basically acting as a hub, basically. So what happens is is that you've got your hub, you got. So what happens basically is you've got whatever gets popular or promoted or that on the hub ends up developing a mass audience, although. Not entirely. I mean, for example, the the webcomic I work on, uh, Lord of Goblins, we basically just put it out there. And we've had like a couple million reads now. And we've got, you know, uh, I think we're probably about 120,000 subscribers at this point. We And we're not even, like, we're still in the B-Leagues on Webtoon, for example. So we still do have a mass audience. Quite a, We have quite the audience. Although, again, 110,000 subscribers or 120, whichever. In old school Marvel comics days, it's still a pretty not it's still not a very high number. I know that, and remember this is worldwide as well. So there is that. If you get into the A leagues on Webtoon, in some of the more promoted areas, yeah, some of them have like tens of million or tens or hundreds of millions of subscribers. I'm not kidding about that. If you go look at them, so we're still kind of in the B leagues, but we still did manage to get a decent size audience out of it. Yeah, because that audience is is on par with a current Marvel audience. Yeah. Well, not but it's, even. It, but, it, but yeah, it, it, but again, it's that idea too, that you're looking at such a volume of material yeah. that you, you get the effect that you started seeing um, in the eighties and especially the nineties with comics mm-hmm. that with the web comics, once something starts hitting, mm-hmm. then you start seeing more and more that looks like that. Yes. Yeah. And this 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 is why um, I highly recommend the uh, Jello Apocalypse video. Welcome to Webtoons. Right. Yeah, I'll put it in the show because, notes. Yeah, because they kind of get into that. That then everything gravitates to that. So you do. You'll always have hits. You always have like say a web comic that's a million views a week. 
But for that one that gets a million views a week, there's two million comics that get five. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There are a lot of them. I'm going to sadly argue that uh, having looked at some, a lot of them deserve five. That's all they, that's all they deserve. <laughs> to be honest. Like, you know, there's Sturgeon's Law, 90% of everything is crap. And I don't remember whose law it is that Sturgeon was an optimist. Um, but, but it definitely applies to webtoons. It definitely applies to only about maybe 10% of them are actually half decent. And then only about maybe, you know, maybe 10% of that 10% are actually good or, or are actually really good. Like, yeah. So yes, anyone can put their stuff out there, but there's a reason why not everyone makes it to the A-Leagues on, uh, on there. There's a couple of reasons for it, but so yeah, we do. You're right. We basically got cheated. Going back to what you're saying, we got cheated out of our great age of experimentation in North America, and we've been paying the price and playing catch up ever since. And yeah. it's unfortunate, but so that that's one of the reasons why our car. One of the reasons why our comics market fell behind the Japanese, and now so the Japanese style and approach is kind of swept in and just taken over. Yeah. So as the vapor said, I think I'm turning Japanese. I think I'm turning Japanese. I really think so. Um, <laughs> currently we all are at least the comics industry is anyway so anyway so thank you everyone for listening um, I hope you found this show interesting entertaining and um, insightful hopefully we, I think we uh, had some interesting stuff that we talked about this episode if you do think anything is interesting or want to leave uh, comments or whatever drop by obeythedna.com and check out the show notes and leave your thoughts we'd really appreciate it and on that note Good night, everyone. And if you get the chance, put a link to your webtoon and maybe we'll make fun of it. Oh, that's a good idea. We could make a special series about that. So yeah, do that too. Good night, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to hear more or join the conversation, come visit us at ObeyTheDNA.com. You can also find us on iTunes or whatever fine podcast site forgot to lock their back door. So until next time, remember that to master the nerdly arts takes time, practice, and enough Coca-Cola to drop a rhino. See ya!